everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Is anyone here? I don't even know. I hope they are. Hashtag ontological shook. Who wrote Wine Country with Emily? Liz Kakowski. Speaking of blue entities, have you seen the documentary The Nightmare? Oh, yes. I've learned that this is part of my astral plane, but I spelled it P-L-A-I-N. No rules on the junk drawer. I didn't talk about my actual abduction. I'm thrilled to hear this point of view from you. (laughs) Any thoughts or news on the South American alien mummy? Astonishing Legends would like to thank BetterHelp, Masterclass, Mint Mobile, Skylight Frame, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we brought you the astonishing legend of Zygmunt Adamski's strange death 44 years ago in June of 1980. It is a story deeply intertwined with UFO and UAP research, not only in the UK where it happened, but worldwide. For many, it is synonymous with UFO abduction cases, and as we detailed, it is a strange case regardless of how Adamski's untimely death came to pass. World-renowned researcher Philip Mantle joined us for an in-depth look at Adamski's case from the perspective of someone with personal knowledge of it. He grew up in, and still lives only about 15 minutes away from where it all took place. Philip's dad and Zygmunt used to ride together to work as colliers, and Philip knew Adamski, well enough to say hello anyway, when he would see him in passing. Having held administrative positions at the most prominent UFO investigations groups in the UK, like Bufora, Philip was present when a phone call came in from someone claiming to be a relative of Adamski's. Her story of Zygmunt's mysterious death, while difficult to prove, made a lot of sense, For more on that, listen to last week's episode if you haven't already. That might be the end of it all, except disconnecting Adamski's passing from a possible alien abduction doesn't tie everything related to this legend up in a neat little bow. Five months after police constable Alan Godfrey first laid eyes on Adamski's body, he encountered something that he had previously not really believed in, a UFO. It was blocking the road in front of his police car, or Panda, as they used to call them. He sat transfixed before realizing that he needed to gather evidence of what he was seeing, so he took out a piece of paper and started sketching it. He made a fair amount of progress on his rendering when suddenly he found himself driving down the road on the opposite side of the craft, as though he'd driven right through it. And on top of that, a chunk of time was missing from his memory. Constable Godfrey hadn't given much thought to UFOs before, but what he saw on November 29, 1980, changed his life forever, and not for the better. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Alan, just watch your back. 
There are people out there who are determined to do you harm in any way they can. To be blunt, they want you out and will stop at nothing until they succeed. Police Surgeon Dr. Ellis to Constable Alan Godfrey during a surprise medical check. From Godfrey's book, Who or What Were They? Join us tonight for part two of our series on the mysterious events surrounding Zygmunt Adamski's unsolved murder in 1980. And we're back! That we are, folks. The holidays approacheth, which is a word, but I'm probably not using probably. it right. Uh, for those of you who don't follow us on socials, you might not have seen me modeling our new Ooh. smoke gray beanies or, or knit caps. That's a new color in stock now, along with our original dark red heather, which is more of a maroon color. Yes. And on top of this, in the spirit of the season, we've gone through the store and marked a ton of stuff down. It's pretty much a sale right now, so if you've been holding out for merch... This is a great time to get in there and check it out. It's pretty close to the end of the year, so we can't promise arrivals by gift-giving season. But we will do our best. Is that on us? I mean, I did order the stuff in time, but we got uh, some botched stuff that had to true. be reordered, and now it's Christmas, <laughs> so we got a little bit hosed. Okay. But speaking of botched stuff, there's a fair amount of that in the super discounted Seconds and Mistakes section of the store. This is a new yeah. section. If you don't mind things being a little janky, mm. uh, just make sure you read the descriptions. That stuff is dirt cheap, <laughs> but there are no refunds on those particular items. No. Well, we're all irregulars here, aren't we, folks? Uh, That's right. Ourselves. And uh, everything must go. <laughs> and in other news, we were set to appear on a special with Jim Harold that was supposed to be released on December 26th. But some of the participants were under the weather, so that's being pushed to January, and we'll keep you posted on that. And just to be clear on the current lineup, tonight's episode is the second of three new shows in a row for December. Next week, we'll be back with the astonishing All-Star Holiday Special number four, if you can believe that, mm. where we'll be joined by Jim Harold, Micah Hanks, Richard Haddam, Paul Gledhill, Allison Jornlin, and the hosts of Scared All the Time, Ed Vicola and Chris Kulari, as well as our very dear friend, the host of the Midnight Library, Miranda Merrick, and our right-hand woman, who pretty much runs our entire operation, Tess Feifel. With impressions by Rich Little and an appearance by Shields and Yarnell. That's going to be great, folks, so don't miss it. I wish. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. It may even be posted a little before the 23rd. Yes, and even though we'll be shut down for the holidays and New Year's for a few weeks, including the Patreon junk drawers, we may still post at least one, if not two, older junk drawers to the main feed during our dark weeks to keep you company. And on that note, this can be a hard time of year for a lot of people. Stress levels are high, family can be wonderful, but also irritating, <laughs> and loneliness can be pervasive too. It does seem a little bit like the older you get, the harder the holidays can be, at least for me. Just know that we're incredibly grateful for your support and for having you as listeners. We truly do see you as friends, and well, you are, because without you, Forrest and I would be out of work, for sure. That is so true. Well, we just wanted to say thank you, and we see you, and we appreciate you. Remember that you can get emotional support at any time of day or night by calling, texting, or chatting with the trained counselors at the 988 Lifeline. Yes, all you have to do is call or text 988, or you can chat at 988lifeline.org and get the emotional support you need any time of day or night. Okay, folks, we've got a lot more to cover when it comes to the Zygmunt Adamski case and what happened to police constable Alan Godfrey just five months later that changed his life. So let's dive into it. Okay, so yeah, apparently some folks are upset, upset that we supported the idea <laughs> that there may not have been any UFO UAP uh, involvement in the death of Zygmunt Adamski. 
Well, I supported that anyway. I shouldn't <laughs> no, speak do for not. you. I'm going to let okay. you talk about this yes. in a second. So I do want to know where you come down mm. on Philip's story from part one about the niece calling. I, I think they were before. Uh, Philip worked at right, all of them at right. some point, but he was in there. The other guy takes the call. This niece says that Zygmunt had basically been kidnapped mm-hmm. by his wife's extended family who were in town for a wedding, which we knew yeah. that part. And then he was held in isolation in a shed where upon trying to escape, he knocked over a shelving unit with some ancient household right. chemicals that had fermented or what have you, and that coated and burned the back of his neck. And in this escape attempt, mm. he injured his hands and either he or his kidnappers used a shirt to try and wipe the acid off the neck, which they then put some sort of salve on. And somewhere in the process of all this, he died of a heart attack, mm-hmm. and then they ditched his body without ID far enough away that they would have time to flee the country before anyone got wise. So I'm restating yeah. that because it's it's a little mm. bit complicated. I know it sounds like a Rube Goldberg, you know, it's a very complicated chain of events. But I mean, for me, it's it does sound a little bit plausible, as plausible as an alien abduction. Well. <laughs> and I'm I'm someone who believes in alien abductions. Yes. I mean, we've had tel- Terry Lovelace on the show. I believe Terry. No, I I know, and and Philip was absolutely lovely. I'm so glad to have him on. We've actually been connected on Facebook for a while. I don't know if I mentioned that in part one, and and oh, I. Yeah was reading a lot of his opinions and him chiming in and interviews when we did the alien autopsy. Remember that? Uh, Yeah. Because he was consulted by journalists on that one as well. Yes, we did cover that series. Look it up, folks, if you want. We interviewed the man who made that film, so. Well, that's a good point because that's one where I was convinced. It's like, yeah, when you lay that out, like Spiros did, it makes sense. It sounds plausible. There's nothing that's a nagging question. It's like, I have no nagging questions. The way you lay this out, I believe that you are responsible for this prank, regardless of (laughs) what it did to people and the field of ufology and those that believed and didn't and all that and causing turmoil. Well, one, to your question, sir, is I find it bizarre and humorous and ironic in a way that people are mad that we didn't go full-blown UFO on this. It, you know, the, the opposite right. would be like, how, you idiots, you're tying a UFO abduction of some kind of this, you you morons. Well, and, and by the way, to be fair, it's not a large group. No, I it's know. It's a vocal minority. No, and, and that's but, what we uh, have to remember yeah. too, and everyone should, when it comes to comments online and responses and even polls, is that it's a small sampling of people. It's not everybody, but it's easy to start thinking that way. Like, oh, everybody thinks this. Certainly Scott and I have done this. Like, oh, everybody hates this. We should stop doing that. And then what you learn right. is that you stop doing right. that. And people say, why'd you stop doing that? That was terrific. That thing you did before. Right. That, or the people, a few people said they hated. So yeah, it's a small minority. You can't judge that as the majority of thought. And even if it is the majority of thought, often we know that's not the right tack as we learn later in history. In this case, though, I just find it funny that, you know, look, we've seen this in our comments and maybe it means we're doing something right. When you get just as much pushback and criticism, negative, from people who think you are too credulous as the people who think you are not credulous enough. And in this case, right, what's right. kind of funny is that, yeah, normally people would be like, look, you tinfoil hat buffoons. How can this possibly be connected to UFOs? They don't exist. We don't approve of them. All those videos you see, that's all baloney. This doesn't happen. People are not abducted. They're just, whatever. They got some mental issues. The mental. In this case, though, that's why it's kind of interesting that they're so strongly connected. I think because... Maybe, as Philip said, there is the Adamski name to it, but I think more so perhaps is that there are strong connections that I see to other high strangeness cases. To me, even if 
UFOs weren't something that people thought about or a real thing. You could tie this to more so a missing 411 phenomenon yeah. in the way that yeah. people are found in an odd way. The clothing that's messed with, the locations, the timing, the distances, it all rings of something not being kosher. Yeah, the, the biggest question for me on it, because I, I bought into the whole family thing. I got a big family. I could see my cousins putting me in a shed and trying to get well, me to Well, for a joke, somewhere. but that's a little extreme, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, but, but still, I mean, I can see that story. And also, we got to add all these things into it that we don't understand at all. What was uh, Poland like at this time? Right. What was the Eastern Bloc like? What was happening in terms of people going well, back Well, I was saying, you want to go back? They're like, hey, it's great. Let's go back well, to a repressive society that most people like on the eastern side of Berlin, are trying to get out of. But who knows? We don't know that. That's what I'm saying. Well, yeah, yeah, we don't know anything about the family. It could have been that the family, and I, again, don't know anything, but maybe the family was corrupt and they were making a lot of money back in the uh, well, that, <laughs> Poland. No, that could very well be. I mean, I and that know. points to my yeah. point here, my pointing point, is that anything beyond that and motivations are still speculation. Now, I will say this, yes. in deference and honor to our guest, I think if you're looking for a mundane or more mundane explanation for this, it's plausible. The source makes sense right. to me too. The source makes sense for this relative, this niece to call in and be like, look, here's, we yeah. all know, in the family, we all know what happened. This is what happened. And if she was really the niece. Now here's what I'm going to say. I'm not, I'm not denying be the that. goal. If you're going to be, the goal might only be if you were an alien right. and you wanted to throw people <laughs> no. off the scent of aliens and you would call and you can't really talk. Okay. Right. Well, then it would be obvious, wouldn't it? Here's, here's what I'm going to say though, Scott, you yourself, poor English, came across and pointed out to me a lot of strange political undertones and subterfuge here. Yeah. And it may not be correct. It may not be right or accurate, but undertones of KGB involvement. And I know this is passed off, but I'm saying like people calling in, posing as Russians. Were they Russians? Who, how do we know? Were they MI6? Yeah. Were they MI5? Were they CIA? We don't know. There's, like I said, it's a blind wall, a literal iron curtain, not literal, but there's, you know, politically, <laughs> there's a lot we right. don't know on this other side of it that the rest of it fills in with speculation. Now, like I said, what I will say is that I'll buy this. Here's the thing. As anybody who loves true crime, like I do, or and you do perhaps, is that when you watch dumb criminal shows and actual cases, people do the stupidest, ridiculous, most nonsensical things when it comes yes. to some cockeyed harebrained scheme and they pull off. It's like, well, then one thing leads to another. Like, oh, you did this. Well, now you got to do this. And that yeah. doesn't make sense. I mean, look at uh, Fargo. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. gone sideways and now you're doing more and more extreme dangerous and, and illegal things to get out of it. And as the Scandinavian saying that I love goes, the mouse caught in a trap doesn't want the cheese anymore. It just wants out. And so it's like, let's get rid of this guy, even though he's an in-law. Some in-laws, by the way. And, you know, you can't pick them. You <laughs> yes, and Forrest is talking about the movie, not the wonderful TV series. Oh, yes. No, no, the original movie. movie. Yes. yes. Terrific. Pancakes! What pan we just had pancakes! Anyway. Uh, that would be your accomplice in the wood chipper? <laughs> Yeah. My point being is that we've <laughs> seen real cases of people doing like, why did that make sense? You know? Well, and that brings me to my biggest question, because like, even though I am, I am inclined to go along with this phone call from right. the niece and that whole story makes sense to me in a lot of ways, including his body being brought to Todmorden because it's 20 miles away. And when people find it, they're not going to necessarily recognize him because it's a whole different village. Right. And, you know, these things were insular at the time. Take his ID. It buys you time to get out of the country. All that makes sense to me. But the part that doesn't 
is being on top of the pile of coal. Regardless of, yeah, that's one and, of them. You know, sure. little nod to Harvey on Twitter who was like, "Well, we don't know. How do we know that you wouldn't leave?" Coal wouldn't fall down when you climb up and down it. But, you know, to Philip's point, Philip, right. is he grew up with these piles of coal. Right, right, right. I, I trust him on that point of view. But still, my question is, why put the body up there? So, and there's a couple yes. of things. okay. There's a couple of things about that. One is to make it more prominent. This would be one of those cases where I would really like to talk to John Douglas, who actually yes. has a class on Masterclass right now, one of our sponsors tonight, uh, about the profile of the criminal that would put the body on the pile of coal. Because... That's a prominent place of display in a lot of ways. I am not convinced that the folks who said they were there earlier yeah. in the day and didn't see it might have overlooked it. It was raining. Right. 15 feet up uh -huh. is pretty high. Mm -hmm. you, people walk under things all the time and don't look up. So I think there's a possibility maybe it was there from the night before. The people that were there didn't see it until Trevor, the son, noticed it in the afternoon. Mm. I think that's plausible. Mm -hmm. But I still don't know why it would be on top of the pile of coal in the first place. And for me, that's the biggest question about Adamski's murder. That's interesting that you think that's the biggest question. It's one of the biggest for me, but not the biggest. Because again, going back, I just want to make this clear is that I liked how Philip laid all this out. And I agree. I think if you're looking for something that is more pedestrian, prosaic, mundane, it fits. A lot, of, a lot of these pieces fits. However, like so many, maybe all, maybe most of these kind of paranormal cases that we come across, it's like you'll get a good answer that fits a lot of it, but there are still nagging questions. And that's yeah. where I'm yeah. at now. There are still just a few nagging questions. I just wish it could be many things, as you know, when you've done something or, you know, like I said, it, it's a minor innocuous thing that you've done with your family or it's a mystery with your coworkers. Like, who did that? Oh, my God, right. who left that in the bathroom? Whatever that right. is, is that you might know the truth. It's like, no, they're wrong on that. That wasn't how it yeah. happened. It was much more disgusting. Yeah. And people speculate and they concoct these stories and they might be close, That's but true. there are things that are off about it. And so in this case, there's just a lot we don't know still. And so here's what I would say is that, yes, as Philip laid that out, and by the way, I'd heard that uh, years before that as a possible thing. It's like, yeah, they, you know, that could be, that could very well fit all of this. But again, the nagging questions for me, getting back to, we'll touch your pile in a second here, sir. First, yeah. I think, that, okay, let's start with the, the biggest, well, one of the biggest ones is that as you label the section here, die a fright, is it possible? He dies a fright, let's say, being bullied by his in-laws to do something and you know they take it too far it's five days now how's he gonna explain that to his wife like it's fine it's fine i just it was awesome friends we had a bender so he dies of a heart attack let's say or a fright that they're getting so mad they're gonna kill him he dies of fright his eyes are open and a little aside here i learned that as a small child from my grandfather who one time we were watching a western i believe uh as we used to watch a lot of those with him he was like four People die with their eyes open. Really, yeah. Grandpa's like, yeah, that's not in the movies where they're like, oh, ah, then they close their eyes. They die with their right, eyes open. Right. It's like, really? And he's like, yeah. And then, you know, if your fellow soldier, sadly there beside you, you tend to close their eyes for them as a decent act. My point being here is that even if they didn't like Ziggy, they left his eyes open for the whole ordeal, even if they're in shock, like, oh my gosh, we killed him. You close his eyes. Talking about profiling, John Douglas, like the shame, the guilt, like, oh God, we screwed this up. You know, his wife actually liked yeah. him. And then the whole time you're hauling him over there, he's staring, he's staring at it. As Alan said, in this ghastly, grimaced, pain-frozen face of horror, 
My thing is, though, when you have a heart attack, that's probably what your face looks like. If you go out Maybe. with a heart attack, you might look like that. Hey, I've seen post-mortem photos of a lot of people, and uh, to me, a lot of them look sleepy, okay? Eyes half closed or whatever, or the eyes start to open a little bit. But the deal is, is that his eyes are wide open, and again, that's the first thing that strikes PC Godfrey is that he looks like he died of terror. He's got this frozen fear. It's like, they just wouldn't do that. They let him sit there staring at them like, you SOBs, you killed me. And now Lottie is now a widow. Nice going. And yeah. that yeah. shame and guilt, like you wouldn't just take care of that. Secondly, then you decide, well, you know what? Let's not just dump him in the trash or a bin in the rubbish bin or out the woods somewhere. Like, no, let's take him to someplace that's pretty prominent at a workplace, probably in the daylight. We don't know that. You're right. That's the second thing I would say is that it's a weird place to dump a body Unless, yeah. even if you wanted somebody to take care of them, the authorities, to find him. Maybe in the park next to the police station. Someplace it's like, well, at least they'll find the body, they'll take care of him. Well, they're trying to buy time to get out of the country, though. Well, then then hide it. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah, if you're trying to buy time, don't make it so obvious. That doesn't make sense. Why would it be up on top it's of a the weird, hill? It's a weird, again, people do weird, dumb things. Yeah, it's things. weird. I'm they with you. They do it's weird, weird things. I don't know. I can't speak to the non-disturbance of the coal pieces. Yeah. You know, I tend to believe Philip, you know, as a child, you can scramble around and don't really see any marks. Again, I'll leave that to the investigators and the investigation. Biggest thing for me, one, in combination with that, is that I am watching... Now, a lot of Alan Godfrey clips and his writing and what he has to say about this, I think he's a not a keystone cop, not a bungler. Like, he's no, pretty decent all. about this and his techniques. I think he understands human instinct. Yeah. He's pretty sharp. He's the kind of copper that would just say, like, all right, you know what? I know you. You're acting out of character. Do not do this again, because then I will have to right. bust you. So, uh, right. but fair and decent and smart and capable. And competent. And so if he, plus the other investigators, his superiors, they do a thorough investigation because it's so weird and they can't come to any of these conclusions. To them, it's still bizarre and unsolved and an open case in a way. That has to be considered, I think, just for police work, just for the investigative yeah. route on that. Again, not taking anything away from Phillip's conclusions. Like, like I said, that could be like, well, that could be totally it. I would like to have seen, you know, of course we all want this, an interview officially with the niece, you know, saying like, no, no, I really am the niece. Here I am. And this really happened. And my relatives, they fled. They're now in a Soviet bloc country. You're not going to see them again. Good luck. But I had nothing to do with it. I just heard the story. But I am real. This is really me. That would right. settle it a little bit more for me too. But really the biggest thing, as I'm building up to here saying, is that the coroner, John Turnbull, you know, is on camera saying, and again, he looks like a sharp fella, is that, you know, he's saying, look, the toxicologists, the scientists, myself, none of us could figure out what that salve is. That's a big problem for me. Just like, I know it's 1980. They're not as sophisticated as they are now. And certainly there's no NCIS or CSI effect as a lot of people think like, well, they could solve anything. I know that. But it's also not 1880. And right. any compound that would have been an over-the-counter salve or ointment, like a burn cream, petroleum jelly, aloe vera, I don't, but, but here's the thing, is that even if it was a yeah. folk remedy of aloe vera and this and that and some herbs and spices, uh, the Colonel Sanders recipe on his neck and burns, that could have been determined, I believe, unless there was something that contaminated or some kind of, let's say, amalgamation that 
tainted it in such a bizarre way that it was impossible for them to narrow down any components of this unknown green ointment. Well, it made me wonder if it was an ointment or possibly just a chemical reaction to a bizarre well, exposure. Yeah, me too. Like from the human body, like maybe we don't know what happens when the human body meets this particular can mm -hmm. of chemicals, which, you know, back in the day, I know with my great-grandfather right. anyway, all the bad chemicals went in one jar. So that's a really special right, can right. of stuff right, right. there. And maybe they just didn't have experience like, oh, well, this turns the skin green and creates like a gel-like substance on it. You know, uh, could have been that. Maybe. You'll get, again, possibility. What I'm saying, even if it's an over-counter stuff, I've worked with a lot, you have too, doing some automotive body work. You can use navel yeah. jelly. You know, I know it sounds silly. Yeah. Uh, that pink stuff. It gets rid of rust. That will burn you. Any of these yeah. acids in combination will burn you. If it was stronger, it's like something really bad, like perchloric acid, you're going to get a hole. Yeah, You know, it's going to be right. real bad. And there's going to be right. a lot of screaming and pain and this and that. I just think that... It might cause a heart attack. Possibly, but here's the thing. I just think that they would have... It's just so bizarre and troubling to me. Like, my biggest thing, I think, is that they could not identify what the chemicals were, even if it was some unknown combination of stuff. They're going to be... Well, here, we need Doc Cogs weighing in. Yeah. I'm just saying is that they would be able to identify and isolate some components of that. And for them to say, we have no idea and still don't, that to me is troubling. Yeah, but there was a component of this case getting closed up pretty quick, though, which I will say. Which okay, Godfrey now you're talking about a political about. angle, and I will, yeah. I will deign to that too. I will say, like, okay, if yeah. they were to say, like, we have no comment, wrap it up, boys. We're down here. Sure. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, what's your gift-giving policy over at the old homestead? And are you one of those weird families that opens up everything on Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day is just like any other day except maybe you have waffles? It's not exactly like that. And the truth is my family had its own tradition, which was everything got opened on Christmas Day. But then when I got married, yeah. I was forced into adopting my <laughs> wife's family's I traditions. Know. And so one of the things they do, we still open most stuff on Christmas Day, but we'll open one or two things the night before, which we all did before, right. all families. But the other thing that happens with my wife's family is in the morning on Christmas Day, there will be unwrapped stuff sitting oh, yes. around. Like Santa left it. He came down, he had time to wrap it. He just left it on the couch or in the chair or whatever. Not everything, but some things will be unwrapped. That was new to me when I got married. Well, yes, we all have our traditions. Some cultural. I have a friend uh, who's American that he married a, a Swedish woman, and they party it up on Christmas Eve, open up everything, and then Christmas Day is basically just a regular day with a hangover. No matter what we do, we also love spending a lot of time together. Yeah. And honestly, as everyone I'm sure will admit to, sometimes a lot of family all in one space for an extended period of time can be, well, a lot. Oh, yeah, I, I get you on that, my friend. And and since you and I are practically family, I know how much everyone depends on you to camp in the ship and how much you end up doing for everyone. And that is a lot. So I definitely tip my Santa camp to you, sir. I have a different kind of pressure in that my Christmas break is wall-to-wall -wall handyman fix-it list projects and IT computer repair guy projects for my folks while I'm visiting. And we're also still producing some of the show. So that can also be a lot. And don't get me wrong, I love doing stuff for them, as I'm sure you love helping out your family and friends too, but all of these obligations, well, they can not only be exhausting, but before you know it, you're easily overwhelmed and stressed out. So if anyone out there is feeling the holiday crush, so are we, and you're not alone. No, you're not. And if you add some anxiety and some seasonal blues on top of that, you can feel underwater fast, like you can't catch a breath. 
We all have responsibilities we have to take care of, and there's not much you can do about it or do much about how people act towards you. That, that's just life. But the good news is, no matter how your family gives to each other or how they treat you, you get to define how to treat you, how to give back to and take care of yourself. Yeah, and the holidays are a great time to do that. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easier on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. You've earned it. You can't make your stress, anxiety, and feelings simply disappear, but you can learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, and therapy can really help with that. And it's not just for people who've experienced some major trauma in their lives. No, it's not. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com astonishing today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash astonishing. I'll tell you what, man. Masterclass is just nailing it with all the classes they've been oh, adding yes. lately. I am completely blown away by the folks they have on there. Yeah, it really is an amazing platform. And I get excited seeing the ads online because I know that I have access to all that. It's like, oh, that's <laughs> yes. cool. Let me yeah. check that out next. So they're truly enlisting the best of the best of the best. What's the latest one you're digging? Well, this is one where I get to do a name drop, Ooh. which I have to say is pretty exciting. Amy Poehler has a class yes. up there now called Prepare to be Unprepared with Amy Poehler, and it's phenomenal. As I've said in the past, my wife was a writer on Saturday Night Live for nearly right. a decade, and her and Amy had their very first show together on September 29th, 2001, just 18 days after 9-11. Right, right. It was an unbelievable experience, and meeting Amy, well, I was already a huge, huge fan because yeah. Emily and I had been watching her on TV for years at that point on the Upright Citizens Brigade show and Conan O'Brien. Right. So to me, she was already a celebrity. And I'm proud to say now that we've all been friends for over 22 years. And she's one of the smartest, most amazing people I know. And when it comes to comedy, a flat out genius. You could not ask for a better person to teach you about comedy and especially improv. Oh, yes. You know, the first time I saw her, uh, she was playing Andy Richter's annoying little sister who was obsessed with Conan on the Conan O'Brien show. And she had the headgear on and, and yes. it. It was perfect. Who was knew she would character. end up at the height of heights? But man, that is so cool. So what's her class like? Well, it's true polar, in my opinion. It, no yeah. nonsense, no boundaries. And one of the best things about her is her ability to convince people to believe in themselves and their ideas, but at the same time, especially creatively, not to get too attached to any one idea. She talks about being ready to move on from something to the next thing if it's time to do that. And also the importance of how doing the work with the right people is more important than the idea you're working on at any given time. Now, I love that philosophy. Her point is that if you're working with a great team, you support each other and you all work together in a great way and the creative work develops and flourishes from that energy. And she should know. Yeah, I love that. And also, we just talked about this idea is that you could be watching the parade of your life, waiting for the right float to get on. And before you know it, that parade is over. You've missed That's it. right. You're just waiting for the right moment. So jump in there. Well, folks, this is just another reason that Masterclass makes a meaningful gift for someone special in your life this season for you yourself or anyone on your list, because you can all learn from the best to become the best, whether it's writing and performing comedy or working on your leadership skills, effective communication, or even cooking. Whether you're watching Masterclass on TV, listening in audio mode, in the app, or on their site, 
the quality speaks for itself. It's like masterclass instructors are your own personal mentors who are going to help you reach the next level. Can you imagine how much it would cost to take one-on-one classes from the world's best like Amy Poehler? Easily hundreds to thousands of dollars. With a Masterclass annual membership, it's $10 a month. That's a deal so good, she even jokes about being suspicious about it in her class. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's got to be a catch. But there isn't. I can tell you that. Memberships start at just $120 a year for unlimited access to one-on-one classes with all 180-plus Masterclass instructors. Learn how to negotiate a raise with Chris Voss or manage relationships with Esther Perel. With new classes added every month, like Amy's class, or another of my favorites, Neil deGrasse Tyson's oh, Scientific yes. Thinking mm-hmm. and Communication. And Forrest and I are constantly having to brush up on that to reinforce our perspective on the esoteric topics we cover, and it helps keep us grounded in our evaluation of the strange and unusual. Absolutely. Boost your confidence and find practical takeaways you can apply to your life and work. And if you own a business or are a team leader, use Masterclass to empower and create future-ready employees and leaders, too. This holiday season, give one annual membership and get one free at masterclass.com legends. Right now, you can get two memberships for the price of one at masterclass.com legends. This is a great deal, folks. Don't pass it up. Masterclass.com legends. Offer terms apply. Greetings and salutations. This is Tiffany Weisenin from Orange County, California. When I'm not playing DJR college chess with a Wookiee, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. So let's get back to the show, shall we? I need to circle back, though. I do want to talk about something else. Whether or not you can die of fright, uh, you know, we had more than a few people push back on Philip's assertion that dying of fright is, as he said, not a thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard that you can absolutely die of fright and even heartbreak over the years, yes. but I've never actually researched it. So I consulted Britannica. We'll have a link in the show notes on this. And these are the takeaways. You can actually be scared to death. It's a real phenomenon that can occur when a strong emotional response, such as fear, triggers an excessive amount of adrenaline in the body. Though people with pre-existing heart conditions are more susceptible, even those who are perfectly healthy aren't immune. The chain reaction starts with our body's automatic response to intense emotion, which includes an accelerated heart rate, anxiety, sweating, and elevated blood glucose levels. Everyone likes an adrenaline rush. That's why we ride roller coasters and go bungee diving. Well, not me, but a lot of you folks out there. And that's fine. But in large quantities, adrenaline can be harmful to your organs, like the heart, liver, kidney, and lungs, and uh, pancreas. The consensus among scientists is that sudden deaths from fear are primarily due to damage to the heart caused by an adrenaline overload. The adrenaline rush causes calcium channels in the heart to open, making it difficult for the heart to slow down. This could potentially lead to ventricular fibrillation, a type of abnormal heart rhythm. This irregular heartbeat impedes the heart's ability to pump blood efficiently, which can result in sudden death if not treated quickly. But fear isn't the lone culprit here. Other intense amounts of experiences, such as sporting events, or for the lucky few, sexual activity, can also trigger adrenaline-induced deaths. So it's not just fear we need to keep in check, but any extreme emotion or experience that could cause a surge in adrenaline. And that is why I'm not a huge fan of cold plunges. <laughs> oh, but everybody says they're terrific for you. Wim, yeah, Wim, I, don't, I, don't off, like Wim I always off. feel like my heart is going to like pop yeah. out of my chest when I do a cold plunge. But you know. Well, Scott, have you seen the terrific show so far? I'm going to give it a little plug here. The Unbelievable with Dan Aykroyd. 
who of course, as we know, is really big into the uh, paranormal. No, I haven't seen it yet. I, I'm actually planning to watch it over the break, hopefully. So. Oh, good. Okay. Well, it's very good. So far, I've seen two episodes. It's funny you mentioned that, though, because episode number two has to do with bizarre deaths. And one of them that they covered was the death, sadly, but also humorously in a way, of Alex Mitchell, March 24th, 1975, of Kings Lynn, England, who died laughing to death. Oh, now you've okay. right. Have you heard of that and and the show? I think you have a note on the show. What show it was? I just now looked this up. I'm gonna pretend that I already knew about it, but I didn't. Uh, it says right here, March 24, <laughs> 75. Right. Alex Mitchell from Kingsland, England, died laughing while watching the Kung Fu Capers episode of The Goodies. This yeah. is from Wikipedia, featuring a kilt-clad Scotsman with his bagpipes battling a master of the <laughs> Lancastrian martial art, yeah. Ecky Thump who was armed with a black pudding. Once again, Mm. we're back to the White Stripes here with uh, one of my favorite tracks by them is Icky Thump, which apparently is connected a little bit to this episode Uh, and uh, that expression, which is a colloquial expression of surprise, apparently. But the goodies made the expression famous. Well, I've certainly had the giggles and a laughing jag that where you can't stop laughing and then somebody else makes you continually laugh and you feed off each other and... And it's a yes. good old time, and it feels good. Your 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 stomach muscles might be a little sore, but it's a good laugh. It's a good belly laugh. And it's especially bad if you're somewhere where you're not supposed to be laughing, like church or a meeting or, you know. Exactly, a, or a, trying a to record a show or a podcast. This really hasn't happened <laughs> yeah. to us too much. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it happens to actors and, and the performers, especially on stage, and especially, uh, as Scott will say, they don't like it when you break on live TV sketch comedy. Yes. Because sometimes you can see it as a cheap way out. Like, this sketch ain't working, so we're just going to like yeah. laugh out loud. <laughs> this is so funny. And it right, gets people right. laughing. It's infectious. In this case, though, he was laughing so long and so hard for a prolonged period of time, he overloaded his vital systems, his blood pressure, his heart rate. Everything went through the roof, and he didn't stop. And in his condition, Alex Mitchell sadly passed. So that can happen, I think, also in the reverse, where you're not laughing, you're screaming. And it's so terrifying that it just overloads your system. And I have heard of cases of people, well, we hear it all the time, don't we, of people dying of heartbreak, especially with older folks, older couples, and one passes away, and a few days later, the other one goes. Yeah. Same thing with Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. She wanted to see Carrie again. Through no means, she was just, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to see my daughter. And that can happen. It's a real thing, I believe. So anyway, sir, please continue. I'm going to circle back here and just say, Philip, if you're listening to this episode, we want to counter that you can die of fright. But I'll I'll add, uh, and apparently laughter, Mm. I'll add the American Heart Association says it's exceedingly rare. So the question is, did Zygmunt die of fright? Uh, Maybe. Or maybe just a heart attack from being burnt by acid or trying to escape his shed. I don't know. Just the stress, too, yeah. Now, Philip said it, that's not a thing, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he meant that it's exceptionally rare, mm-hmm. which our cursory research supports. It wasn't meant to be taken as an absolute so much right, as right, his right. thoughts on the possibility of it being slim to nil. Conversely, if the aliens are listening, we might would encourage them not to abduct people with heart conditions unless they're going to go ahead and fix the heart condition for them. Well, there are other cases. I can't uh, – probably Rob Kay can think of a few where – People were returned, or I believe also accidentally died. Actually, there's a famous one. Whoopsie. I will say Travis Walton, where (laughs) the ray, whatever was coming out of the ship, stunned him so bad he was unconscious. And they were like, "Uh, maybe we should, well, we got the technology here. Let's just fix him. And so they took him aboard. Right. That was a whoopsie. And uh, they brought him back. However, if you're not expecting that, it's still very unpleasant. 
and frightening. Yeah, and he could have died of fright. Imagine seeing that. Well, it's like coming out of carbonite. <laughs> Nerd <laughs> oh, alert. Dear. Yeah, but that's um, the point is it depends on your system and what's going on at that moment. And I believe, like spontaneous combustion, also in episode two of The Unbelievable Possible. Well, there is another matter. Some folks seem to be upset when Philip suggested there was not necessarily a connection between Adamski and a possible alien abduction. I want to know why that is. I mean, this story is fascinating because it's absolutely wrapped up in an incredibly convincing case of a close encounter mm. of the second kind. And if you believe in hypnotic regression as evidence, possibly the third kind. But the consensus is that Constable Godfrey had a very real encounter that I think it's safe to say not only we believe, but so does Mr. Mantle. So when we say, well, maybe Adamski's death wasn't connected to an abduction, but we fully believe there are UFOs and UAP that happened just a few months later, and we've had guests on in the past that we believe were abducted, like Terry Lovelace in the Devil's Den episodes, why would somebody get mad that in this particular case, we're open to separating those two events? What makes people upset about that? I'm very curious about it. And I'm not being defensive here. I want to be clear on something because sometimes when we talk about people pushing back with us, everyone's like, relax, ignore the trolls. That's not what we're doing. Right. No, it's funny is that uh, I guess that winds you up more is that it's either like, don't lose to the haters. And then the other side, it's like, you guys are always so sensitive. Yeah. No, it's that's not what's happening here. These are good (laughs) conversation points. I love these questions. I love people saying, well, I don't know about this. Yeah. So this is, I am truly curious. And I, I don't know, Forrest, if you have an idea, but like, I feel like some people, it's just like, there's some legends, especially astonishing legends, because this is yeah. a famous one. Every now and then we'll cover things that are really obscure and people haven't heard of it. So people aren't mm. latched onto it. But the, in some cases, there's things that people have been living right. with so long that it seems like if you suggest anything else, they get upset. It's kind of like the there was a person in our Facebook group that got super mad about whether or not an inkwell was tipped oh. over on the Mary <laughs> Celeste. Well, yes, like, of course, you uh, you had chosen uh, back then. You had the energy and the time, I suppose, to engage with people engaged, and say, "Well, yes, that I was did. not really <laughs> on the uh, you know on the manifest." Yeah, I don't yeah. really see this as being one of those kind of lifelong cases. It's odd that we have come after all these years to find that people get really, let's say, invested in certain cases. It strikes a chord; they can't detach, or that's just their thing, man. This is. This is their jam, and they have read a lot about it, even if it's something archaeological, let's say. And they got it. Yeah. Like, I read like yeah. eight books on this, and I'm going to tell you, you guys are wrong. And that's fine. But, yeah. you know, it, yeah. what we will say is I always say, even as I said in that scenario, is that, well, yes, but we really don't know, do we? So we're not saying yeah. one way or the other, but they have an idea. It was this tool. It was this method. It was this scenario that happened and that's you know the way it went is that the the vial tipped over here i mean not so much but people it's like we've just always heard this and i don't want to hear anything other because here's my thing i have no skin in this uh i I have no uh weeping festering wound skin uh with green unknown salve unguent on it well you and i are on opposite sides of this already a little bit like yeah. I said, I don't know. I just, all I'm saying is that I think it's not wrapped up in a nice little bow, as we said at the beginning. It's just, it, right. there's some nagging right. questions for me that keep the case interesting still, you know? It's not like, ah, shut yeah. the book on yeah. that one. There's some weird things that happen. Yeah. And that's what we love about these stories is that it's just unexplainable things. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, okay, remember going back to another Cohen Brothers thing where the Miller's Crossing, one of my favorite movies of theirs and all time, there's an Irish uh, thug, one of their henchmen, Rug Daniels. And he was shot 
like again, they find the guy. It's like not the cops. It's the own mob, the own Irish mob finds him, and it's like shot with a lady's gun, a pop gun, Leo. So he yeah. shot with a twenty two. Well, that's not usually what one of the gangsters would carry. They carry a larger caliber, right. thirty eight, right. forty five back in those days. And uh, so he shot with a lady's gun. That's weird. And then as Albert Finney, terrific in that movie, he's like. They took his hair, you know, because he had a hair piece. And that's why they called him Rug Daniels. Yeah, like, they called him the Rug. Somebody stole his hair. So weird. Well, what really happened is you saw a little kid ran off with it, with his dog barking beside him. Right. So it's not like the killer stole his hair, which would be weird. Like, why would right. they take his hair? And the Coen brothers are they great are about great. that. They're great about something weird, and then you you go that's in a That's my point, is that there, there's a lot yeah. of weirdness that is the result of this, but we don't know what caused it, and still don't. And that's all I'm saying, is that I don't know, and people don't like to hear that either. They yeah. want a definitive thing. They want an opinion. And it's like, well, I don't got one for you. Sorry. Other than then, this is yeah. ends up weird. But what I do like is that Philip is totally on board with the sighting, and I am too, that PC yeah. Godfrey sketched what he saw, had that experience, and also weird clothing things, which we're going to get to in a little bit here. But as far as Adamski, I love also, listen, I would love that two separate things. One is prosaic explainable. The other is not, but a lot of people, you'll see this too, Scott. I don't know what you think about this is that they'll say like, well, there you go. Adamski's solved. Also, that means Godfrey's thing is baloney. They want to lump them right. together. It's like, no, right. they're not mutually exclusive. You could have had a prosaic thing. Right. Again, the Jose Chung scenario, something ha prosaic exactly. happened, but on top of that, something I weird happened five thing. months later. And that's what I love. Yes, that's an X-Files episode for people that don't know. I think most of our listeners probably do. But we, I just love the organic yeah. and not so organic connection of this because it just, I love the story. That's why I'm here. Well, let's talk a little bit now. Now, we're circling past Adamski. We're going to put that behind us and move on to Alan Godfrey, the police constable who did have an encounter five months later. Let's talk a little bit about his backstory. His book, Who or What Were They, is a really great book. It's a, it's a yes. fun read. He's a good writer. He's a funny writer. He's a down-to-earth guy. I really enjoyed it, and I think he had the help of uh, UFO researcher, UAP mm -hmm. researcher, prominent one, another one in the UK, Jenny Randalls, yes. who contributed to it. And I exchanged a few emails with Jenny. Yeah. She's very kind, uh, trying to reach out to Mr. Godfrey, who I think is pulling back from appearances at this right. time. But Mr. Godfrey, if you hear this, we wish you yes. well. We have uh, the utmost respect for you and greatly enjoyed your book. The book is hard to get right now. I think he had self-published these. I'm not sure he's still shipping them. I've only found a few on eBay here and there, and they're very expensive. Um, Forrest and I are fortunate to both have copies, thanks to uh, Mr. Paul Gledhill, who arranged that for us. Signed copies. Thank you so much, yeah, Glad. So. There's, as far as I could tell here, there's three copies on eBay UK going for about 15 pounds each. Yeah, and I saw one in the US was $132. Yeah. So, yeah. like, I don't know what's going on there. And you can't buy from eBay UK in the US because I tried that Did once. You? So I had to then try to get, or yeah, we had to try to get Glad to buy something That's for us right. and ship it to us, yeah, I, I think. think so. but, but anyway, a little backstory on Godfrey from his own book. He was a salt of the earth guy. He grew up in Todmorden. He was kind of a ruffian as a kid, he got into trouble. He did all those things that kids did in, in a coal town. You know, he worked different jobs. He was a butcher. He'd been a bus driver, a cabinet maker, and a prison guard. Mm. Kind of a tough gig. And then he decided to try out for the police force, which he himself thought was a little ludicrous based on his background. <laughs> hey, he, he <laughs> but, knows the clientele. Yeah. Know your customer. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So he's a no-nonsense dude. And as a, a police officer, when he made it, he had a rapport with the locals. They all knew him. They'd watched him grow up. They knew he was tough and not to be messed right. with. But now he was on the good side of the law. And 
as Philip Mantle said, and we alluded to earlier, he'd give you a stern talking to if he busted you yeah. on something, but he's not necessarily going to write you up just for being stupid. So <laughs> right. that's the kind of cop you want, especially in a small town, you know? Tough but fair. Yeah. And there's, yeah, tough Right, but, but also yeah. things need to progress. Yes. Uh, if you're too much uh, of a stickler, then you're clogging up the works. You're the bottleneck. Yes. One of the things he writes about is an injury he got when he was younger, uh, when he was early on the force, during an arrest where he got kicked in the groin so hard, it put him in the hospital yeah. for a long time. And when he was out, they put him on desk duty. This was a particularly gruesome and painful story, right. but he actually tells it with a little humor in his book. There was a couple spots where I laughed out loud. Like at one point he talks about how someone came in to visit him, <laughs> one of his friends, and changed his name on his yeah. medical chart to Mr. Oddball. And then the next nurse <laughs> that came in to check on him actually called him Oh, that. those Brits, uh, yeah. And then he made a joke that I unfortunately can't share on our PG-13 <laughs> show, but it's pretty yeah. funny. In his book, written well after his encounter, he discusses a lot of significant UFO sightings in the UK, including Rendlesham, which just Google it. We can't mm, get into that mm. now, but it's, it's one of the most famous ones in the history of the planet. After his work to get into the police force, he wound up stationed at Todmorden, where he was from. After his work to get into the police force, he wound up stationed at Todmorden, where he mm. was from, and where later he would investigate Zygmunt Adamski's death and ultimately have his close encounter. So this is interesting. Godfrey points out at the time he was on the beat, there was a plastics company in town that manufactured the Futuro home. Yeah. You know what this looks like. This was a house designed by architect Matty Saronin. It was a mass-produced home made out of polyester. And when I say mass-produced, it meant you could do it. It was one of the early, probably the first prefab yeah, yeah. home or, or among them. It was made out of polyester resin, fiberglass, and acrylic, and it looks pretty much exactly like your basic <laughs> flying saucer. Yeah. If you saw a picture, we'll have a link in the show notes, you would recognize it. They were manufactured in a few different countries. Today, there's only like 65 or so left, according to an online list at the futurohouse.com, but they are super cool. And I also found a Kickstarter where somebody was making toys of them, but it's like that classic thing where I think it's might be too late to order them. I don't know. People can dig around yeah. there, but very, very cool, like classic 50s UFO saucer shaped house mm -hmm. with complete with a little ramp door that opens up like a mouth. Now, I love that they look like UFOs and here they are being produced in Todmorden, yeah. where Alan Godfrey would wind up seeing a UFO. Right. So according to Godfrey in his own book, some skeptics have implied that's what he saw on the road that <laughs> right. night. Even though he was not anywhere near the factory no. when the road was blocked, it, and yeah. it would have had to fly there. So no, but that's also my point too: is that you find something to anchor to. Like, well, there yes. you go. It's well, there you go. Well, they speaking of Rendlesham, there. they thought that the red glowing light going through the trees in the woods was the lighthouse. Yeah, it's like, well, there you go. There's a lighthouse on the coast. Like, yeah, that's far enough away not to be seen, even if there weren't any trees. I think. Right. Also, it's a red color that was reported by the uh, Air Force personnel there. Right. And also would have to be pointed back at the land, which right. the lighthouse was not. So, right. but, and the people who ridicule that theory, hypothesis, call it the walking lighthouse because it would, it would right. have to have traveled miles to be able to do that. But like, no, no, good enough. That's it. That's what you saw. End of story. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that, uh, you know, I guess that I do stumble upon is like the fact that these were made there. It's not the only place in the world that they were made, mm -hmm. but that's the point at which I'm like, okay, this is whoever's running the matrix is playing a joke on us. It's kind of <laughs> well, like, we've come to believe like, that. Well, we're yeah. going to put this right here. And then we're going to have this other story over yeah. here. 
in this same tiny little town, it's kind of like, I always think about this when someone's got a name that matches the crime they've committed or something, like Bernie uh, Madoff, yes. you know, he made off with your money. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I'm just like, this can't, somewhere somebody is having a laugh with us. Well, That's, it's you know, one of my favorite uh, Norm MacDonald weekend update jokes. Yeah. Tragically, it was a, a real story where there was a, a high school counselor was uh, arriving at a tough inner city school to give a lecture or yeah. presentation on school violence, and he gets beat up. Right. <laughs> right. And then yeah. Norm yeah. McDonald's in his, del- his perfect delivery is like, why? Because God loves irony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah. you look at a lot of these cases, and it's like, yeah, that is nuts. There's, a, there's an ironic poetic justice sometimes angle to this, or just enough to like, that is... It, pretty yeah, bizarre. no, it's, it's when you do feel like you, if you zoom out from what we're doing, there's right. some like, you know, 12 year old kid playing Sims on his computer. And it's like, well, sometimes. And then I always look at, you know, when people get arrested, the slogan T-shirt they're wearing and that oh, often yes. matches it, what they've done. But yeah, that's their own doing. No, when you yeah, make them put that on. absolutely no blood in yeah. my alcohol officer, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So. Right. So, no, sometimes uh, it's just a weird coincidence. But on some very deep level, I believe there are no coincidences that uh, somehow it's all kind of connected it just may not be of, of any note or remarkable nature so but here yeah. yeah it's like that's enough again for people to question and you should question these things you should wonder it's like well how far away is that could yeah. they've been towing one across the road right right you know transporting it in the middle of the night you know is it large enough that dimension well it doesn't match anything that he saw consciously while he was sketching it yeah probably just a few yards away and again this is another thing i love about his description and people's descriptions in general that you know, when I was studying photography, and uh, this is the old days, folks, when you had, uh, sometimes you'd have cameras that had not really a rangefinder on them. You had to guesstimate the distance, the focal yeah, distance the focal. between the lens, sure. the shutter plane, and your subject. And then you turn the dial on the on the lens barrel to about the amount of feet away your subject was, and that is what would put it in focus. You didn't have anything to look through the viewfinder to, like a split ring or anything to, to focus on. Right. So after a while, you get good at measuring and judging distances and, you know, how far away is that? Eight feet, about nine feet? No, that's about 12. And uh, in short distances anyway. And what I love about people's descriptions like these is that they'll say, as he did, it's 20 feet wide and 14 feet high. He didn't say about 14 feet. He's always said like 14 feet high, not right. 15, not right. 13, not 17. Right. It's 14 feet high. Yeah. And I just love how when people make a description, it's like, oh, that creature, that beast was about seven feet high. Right. It was eight feet or it was nine feet, not seven or six feet is more than that. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that in his training, at the time when they came across an accident scene, they were supposed to sketch it. That's right. And so right. they learned about distances and, and how to portray things for the yes. record. And it was considered evidence. So yeah, they're a trained observer. Yeah, yeah. he's a, exactly a trained observer. Well, circling back to uh, Godfrey's injury, he is very honest about this in his book. He really lays himself bare there. He talks about how he got uh, to where he was drinking too much after that mm. and how it put a strain on his family. The injury really, you know, it waylaid him. So on June 11th, 1980, he was called to the site of Zygmunt Adamski's body. Now, we already talked about that in part one and also just a, a bit ago. So if you want to know more about that and haven't heard part one, go check it out. But now it's time to move on to what happened after Adamski died. Now, firstly, let's reiterate, Godfrey did not believe in UFOs. 
The thought of a UFO or aliens being connected to Adamski's death never crossed his mind. He said nothing about that in his police report. Yes, that's a good point to reiterate, Scott. I'm glad you did it because the idea here is that, oh, he thought that immediately. No, he didn't. He just said it was bizarre. Yeah, he just said it was weird. There's no reports of UFOs during that time, that evening, that uh, or the days prior where Adamski disappeared. He just felt it was a suspicious death and it was strange, but he never thought it was a paranormal death. And when the case was wrapped up with what they call an open verdict, meaning, well, we know it was a heart attack, we're not sure why Mm -hmm. it happened, he was disappointed because he thought that there was more to it, but it seemed like it wrapped up kind of quick and it wasn't his job to investigate it further. In fact, it wasn't really his job to investigate the death in the first place. He just kind of dealt with the scene when they made the first phone call. Right, right. But he was the guy that was there, and so he got connected to it. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And the most expensive. But have no fear, because we're going to put a little cheer in your sphere. And by cheer, I mean hard-earned money back into your bank accounts for something you have to spend money on anyway. Yes, and it's so easy you won't even notice it until you see how much you're saving each month when you switch to Mint Mobile. That's right, because Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home. And switching takes just minutes while saving tons on phone plans starting at just $15 a month. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and switch even more easily and effortlessly with eSIM. And you won't notice a difference with the quality because Mint Mobile is premium wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And all plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data. Yeah, your case may be different, but my coverage actually got better with Mint. When I first signed up with a big-name carrier, I used to have to go outside on the sidewalk before all my voicemails would come through. Imagine how shocking that is, especially as a freelancer back then. And I'm not in the middle of the Mojave. I'm in East Hollywood. Those were some dark days indeed, brother. But here comes the sun with Mint Mobile's best wireless deal of the year. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. That's six months of premium wireless service for the price of three. Or if you need a new device for a limited time, get six months of free service when you buy a select device and plan. And here's how I knew I was saving a ton, especially around this time of the year. I used to take a bunch of holiday photos and videos, but then I'd actually wait to get home where there's Wi-Fi to share because I got stung bad on the wall at a bunch of times with overages. But now with Mint, I share away with folks right there at the gathering because I'm paying for just the amount of data I need. No more, no less. And doing my maths, I'm saving enough this year that I was able to afford an extra present for each of my parents. There isn't any better gift for yourself or a loved one than turning an overpriced wireless bill into just 15 bucks a month with Mint Mobile. And with Mint Mobile's buy three months, get three months free holiday deal, you'll be starting off your new fiscal year way ahead of the game. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. Once again, for a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com A-L. That's mintmobile.com slash A-L. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash A-L.
It's getting down to the wire. Are you panicking about your gifts? Uh, well, there's a few folks I was worried about, but I took the easy way out this year. <laughs> oh, yeah? What? Skylight digital picture frames. Uh, yeah. yeah. I've talked about this before, but I have three myself, and now my mom is getting one. Don't worry, she doesn't listen to the show. Uh, and other family <laughs> members and a few right. friends. Uh, this is a gift that's so easy to gift, and everyone will think you spent hours personalizing it. It really is, and they really do. It's, it's the perfect gift for everyone, from grandparents to new parents to your spouse or even a group of people. You can effortlessly send photos to the frame with a Skylight app or by a special unique email address. I use email all the time for that. It's the easiest way to send a new photo to a friend or a loved one's frame and surprise them with something new, or in the case of some of my friends, something rude. <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> I knew that was you that sent that picture of your dog booping. I know you miss her. Well, I actually do, but now I don't have to because the Skylight frame now comes in new color options including white, silver, and limited edition poppy, as well as gold, and it's more private than social media, which is great in the age of oversharing. Skylight is a touchscreen photo frame you can send photos to straight from your phone, and they appear in seconds. With over 1 million happy customers, thousands of five-star reviews, and availability in 30 countries, there's no reason not to get one or give one as a gift. Satisfaction is guaranteed with Skylight with free 120-day returns. As a special, limited-time offer for our listeners... Get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash legends. To get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com slash legends. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash legends. This is Felimai. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So now let's talk about the next encounter. November 28th, 1980, five months and 17 days after Adamski's body was discovered, Godfrey gets a call. Somebody has called in a police station and he hears over the radio that there's cows wandering around the council houses, generally being a nuisance. So he decides to drive out there to where the council houses are. He goes up this road, it's up a hill, no cows. So he turns around, he gets another call about wandering cows while he was looking for the ones at the council houses, goes back, radios the guys at the station. This is probably a hoax. People are yanking our chain. (laughs) And I think at that point, he he didn't think anything was going on. Then at 1 a.m., and he did work the overnight shift, so he's still on. 1 a.m., this is the 29th now, November 29th, Mm -hmm. a third person calls in and says there's loud noises in her garden. This is an elderly woman out at her house. So he drives out to this woman's house, shows up. She immediately offers him, as he says, a cuppa, to have a nice little cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And he comes in and sits down with her, and she says, now I'm going to tell you something, but you have to promise not to laugh. And Mm. and after that, she says, I know I'm old, but I'm not bloody senile. This woman was 80 years old, by the way. Right. Godfrey kept this story to himself for 37 years out of respect for her Mm. until he published his book in 2017. So this woman told him she heard noises outside of her house. She got up, looked out the window, and saw five to six cows in her garden in the dark, just cowing around, whatever cows do. That's my word there. Oh, very, but, I like so, it. Yeah. So, so she calls the police, and right when she hangs up, an intense bright light lit up her entire mm. house from outside. And then it went out, and when she looked out the window again, the cows yeah. were gone. Yeah. Now, I, I love this part of this story because cows right. are inherently funny. 
Now, Godfrey no longer thought the cow thing was a hoax and wondered if maybe a car coming up the road had been the light. But he yeah. also decided there was nothing to do since the cows were gone. Right. I will point out that later he came back to the house to talk to her again. And he did a cursory investigation at that yeah. point and determined that no, there was no way for headlights to shine in her window. Right, right. Based on where right. the Yes, was. right. Yeah. They love cows. They love cows. What is the obsession with cows? <laughs> so he now decides he's going to drive back up to the council houses again to see if something is actually going on back there. And he gets to a road called Fernie Lee Road, F-E-R-N-E-Y, mm-hmm. where he would turn right off the main drag, which was he was on, which was Burnley. And he would go up the hill back toward the council houses when way down Burnley Road, this is A646, Yeah, he sees something in the road. Now, he's traveling to the northwest here. On his left is Center Vale Park. That's Center, C-E-N-T-R-E, Vale, V-A-L-E. And I'm spelling it like that because if you're a map nerd like I am, you can <laughs> you can Google this pretty yeah. easy in Todd Morden, Center Vale Park. This has a bowling greens and a cricket field and a rugby pitch. It is lined with a wall. And at this time of night or early morning, a gate or two that were locked. It was locked up. So he decides to stay on Burnley Road and skip going back up to the council houses. He's going to drive down the road a little bit further to see what this thing is in the road. And he comes to this ship or craft Mm -hmm. hovering about five feet off the ground. He can't drive past it, and so now he's stuck in some kind of strange standoff with this thing, which he describes, as Forrest said, being 20 feet wide, 14 feet tall, with black window-like features on the top half, and the bottom half of it is rotating counterclockwise. Right. He's likely in a state of shock for a minute, but he gets his wits together, and he turns on the blue lights on top of his patrol car, as well as his hazards, and then he decides he's going to radio the police station local control room, which is about 10 miles away in Sowerby Bridge. Right. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Sowerby, Sowerby. So his radio doesn't work. Right. However, just keep this in mind, as Philip said, that was not that all unusual in that area. Sometimes that would happen. But he tries to radio, gets no response. And then I believe, let's see, he uses a... uh, does he have an earlier cell phone like... uh, Well, he has a VHF That's right. Right. right, Which has a longer range. Yes. Right. So he decides he's going to switch over to that because that should be able to reach Bradford. Because, yeah, as you're, to your point and Philip's mm-hmm. point, he's down in a valley. This is a valley yeah, where yeah. Todd Morden is. So he turns on the VHF. It's supposed to be able to reach Bradford, which is 20 miles away. That would not connect either. Mm-hmm. So what does this remind you of, the radio problems? Well, <laughs> every paranormal encounter story yes uh, we come yeah. across especially on the road with Lonnie Zamora like every oh, yeah. show I mean close encounters you know his the whole uh, work truck goes out for Roy and, uh, and then it comes mysteriously back on when they're done so it's just right, part of the just, phenomenon I'm sure that scene yeah. is because J. Allen Hynek told Spielberg yeah. that's what happens it's just so reported, not always, which also is fascinating, but, you know, because, you know, again, people want like, oh, that always happens or that never yeah. happens. Yeah. So that's just part of it where the communications get knocked out. They come back on once the thing leaves and it's just a little bit of a El Zono Silencio or Zono Rosa, you know, down there where there's just zero communications. That's all part of the lore. I'm talking about Mexico. That's a real area yeah. where there's just yeah. no the signal for whatever silence. reason. Yeah. yeah. It just does <laughs> yeah. not, it does not go through the air. And so that's part of it. But in uh, the short anecdote here, her father was driving a pickup on the road, a straight shooter, very upstanding guy, lovable, uh, terrific guy, driving down the road. And suddenly his 
the pickup just stops. Now, I don't can't remember if there's a light associated overhead because, of course, that's also part of it. But suddenly, like, the radio goes dead. This guy knows trucks, right? Right. And it just stops. And it's weird. It is dead quiet. It's that Now it's that dead silence. And this is what I love is that, you know, this is a, a tough guy, a, a veteran, combat veteran, is too afraid to look out the window and up at right. what might be overhead. So he just sits there like, I'm just going to wait for this to pass, whatever this is. And then suddenly the car comes back on and I'm talking about the ignition. Now, folks, well, Scott, you, uh, you enjoy an automobile and, <laughs> and are knowledgeable about cars somewhat, right? Yes. They don't come back on unless you turn over the ignition. Unless, no. uh, right. You have or to, you have if to you're short the down, circuit. You have to short the circuit that causes the uh, the starter to engage. You can push start a car or motorcycle, yeah. but you got to be rolling. You got to be moving and pop the clutch, and that's very hard. You know, I don't know if it was an automatic, but basically, the point being, folks, is that everything came back on by itself. Radio, yeah. car started up, lights, everything came back on, and he yeah. never knew why. Yeah, it was just like I didn't want to look up. I have heard these stories before. They don't end well. And you never get superpowers, and I'm just going to sit here until, uh, you know, until I feel like something's happening. But yeah, same thing. I think it was deathly quiet. Yeah. And he just rolled to a stop, and then everything came back on. So this is all part of it. But again, this can be explained away, that, at least that aspect of it. So in any case, this is what's interesting is I think, again, this is what I love is that you want to now your mind goes to Adamski, like, there you go. They're out again on the prowl. Now they know who investigated this. They want to they want to mess with him, too. Right. Maybe, maybe right. not. Right. And, and also reminds me of Jay's story uh, about the monkey on rim. Yes. And their radio not working. Right. Uh, whenever they encountered that strange man. And missing time. Jay had yep. a lot of common ground with this story. Sorry, Jay, you probably don't hear that. But <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Well, Godfrey is now thinking he needs to get out of there. And he also wanted to go get another witness to it. So he was particularly bummed because another officer right. had almost taken a ride with him, but he wound up declining at the last minute. So not being the age of cell phones and a camera in your pocket, he decides to sketch what he's seeing. Yes, and this is important, folks. Not sure on the true statistics, but I would say at least 95% of the time if not more, an experiencer sketches what they saw after the fact. Alan Godfrey here is sketching this thing while he's looking at it, and it's a pretty decent drawing. It's very clear. That's right, and he did this uh, because, as we mentioned earlier, this was how they collected evidence back in the day when they came across right. a, a car crash or something. No sooner had he finished the sketch than an extremely brilliant bright light blinded him filling the cabin of his car with such brightness that he had to shield his eyes. And in an instant, he was suddenly down the road, driving, mind you. The car was moving. <laughs> yeah, it seems unsafe. Uh, yeah. Set somebody off. <laughs> off <laughs> like, with it, yeah. Okay, a, we're going to point you forward and go. Yeah. Yeah, so listen to this excerpt from uh, page 102 of his book, Who or What Were They? Quote, With that burst of light, my view of reality suddenly turned on its head. No longer was I sat there looking at the object directly ahead and sketching it for posterity. I now found myself driving the patrol car up Burnley Road, maybe a hundred yards beyond the other side of where the thing had been hovering. Yes, and once again, like Mangyan Rim, and apologies to Jay who relayed that story to us. This is probably not the kind of story they want to hear. <laughs> As you said, connected to theirs, like, okay, now yeah. I have another thing to worry about. Thanks. Yeah, right. That's what fascinates me, the overlaps and parallels sometimes. Things that are not exactly the same, but they rhyme with yeah. other experiences. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. 
So now Godfrey realizes he's down the road. Somehow he had driven through or passed this thing without knowing it, so he makes a U-turn to try and go back and find it. Now he parks and gets out of his car for ostensibly the first time since this all started and starts looking around. The craft is gone, but in the road where it had been was a large circular dry spot. And even though the rest of the road was soaked from rain, he could see in this dry spot a swirl of leaves and uh, maybe some small branches from where the bottom of whatever he'd been seeing had been rotating. And he described a tingling electric feeling in the dry spot. So he decides he's going to race and pick up another friend, and he finds Constable Malcolm Agley and brings him back to the scene to witness the aftermath. Agley notes all the same things about the spot, and on top of that, they both note that the ground, the pavement there, is warm. Mm -hmm. The two decide that they're going to venture into the park we mentioned earlier, Centervale Park, right next to the road here. But it has a wall and a gate, and the gate is closed, so they have to scale it to get in and check it out. Now, you can look this right up on Google Earth, as I said earlier. There are bowling greens and a cricket field and a rugby field. And as they look over toward the rugby field in the dark that late in that morning, sure enough, six cows out cowing around on the (laughs) rugby field. And Godfrey thought, well, these must be the ones I was looking for, maybe. He points out that cows were never grazed at the park. There's a long wall and Mm -hmm. a locked gate. And on the far side of the park, there's a river. So how did they get in there? Yeah. It's a good question, right? Right. What's it remind you of? The cows being Uh, teleported. Does it remind you of anything we Well, everything. Yeah. Every, every. But one thing in particular. Well, a Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Three bulls. Well, here's the thing. And again, some of the details, like I said, it's not just that. If people are making this up, they included some very good sci-fi details with that. I love that is that is all this, the minutia of the story, the yeah. fine details in that there is bailing, you know, hay bailing wire wrapped around. It's all rusted, hadn't been open a long time. Cobwebs yeah. all over the handle of the door where they're supposed to get in. And, uh, you know, they're going to look this like the last place uh, they've looked. And they open it. And when they first look inside, it's as if the three bowls jammed in there are... Under hypnosis, sedated. Yeah, the catatonic. Yeah, they're just like they're not under counting tra- around or bowling around. <laughs> they're, they're just they're catatonic in, in the trailer. That's yeah. right. I'm glad you used bull. Yeah. they're yes. bulletonic. Right, yeah. they're bullish. And then, uh, then suddenly they wake up out of it, and just yeah. all hell breaks loose, and they try to yeah. kick their way out. Yeah. And that's a what a prank that is. The swirling of the leaves also reminded me of another story. Our friend Bill Ruth from two Halloween listener stories ago. Oh yeah, uh, talked about an instance that I think he relayed in the story in the show that ended up in there where it's another part of the experience uh, that he had was more of a haunting of some kind of phenomenon down in the backyard courtyard area where there were trees. I think those little, oh, I can't remember the name of them, the little helicopter things, you know, that the, from fall from the. Uh, oh the yeah. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. Things like that leaves. And those things were, were kind of floating around him in a little whirlpool, yes. a little whirlwind. Yeah. But he said it wasn't like it, there was any wind. And there was a feel, there was a tactile feel in the air that was odd. It was different than like, yeah, we all seen dust devils around. As as kids, we'd, you know, if we saw them on the dirt road, I grew up on, we'd run at them and try to run through them. And, uh, you know, it was kind of fun. You get dusty, but that's wind and dirt and dust and leaves blowing around. That's not this. This is something else. And that was also, that pattern and dry pattern was also witnessed by the officer he picked up. That's right. So again, something with the swirling. I wonder, is that connected with the counterclockwise rotation of the craft? Was it creating a field? Right. 
underneath. And how it. is it levitating? Like what sort of yeah. energy is that? And what does that do to the environment? You know, that's a long running thing too. The, uh, the counterclockwise spinning is part of some kind of zero point technology, right? Not all craft spin, but a lot have been described as top halves, either stationary or one half top or bottom stationary Yeah, and the other part spinning or they're spinning and counter rotation to each other. Right. And that's right. part of how they work. Same thing with the Nazi bell. They yeah. claim that that thing or parts of it were spinning and counter rotation. Something, yeah. something about spinning, cows yeah, and spinning. Yeah, yeah. It all comes down to cows and spinning. I love that these cows are being teleported all over town. Of course, now when I brought that yeah. up to Philip, he was not on board. This. He made the valid point right, that right. cows are all around out there. Yeah. Maybe some found their way into the park somehow. Yeah, they wandered um, around. And uh, yeah, I mean, I personally like how hard it is to convince Philip something strange is going on. That's exactly what you want and expect from a seasoned UAP Absolutely. No, you want to come in, uh, not wait on one of the side or the other, but on the side of logic and let's go down the middle and then see which way the scale tips on this thing. Yeah, but I mean, I'm still, me personally, I'm still a little hung up on the cow thing, having a mundane explanation mm-hmm. because... You know, I don't know. I guess that's my confirmation bias toward believing what NIDS <laughs> experienced cows. at Skinwalker, right. like we just yes. talked about. And for more on that, folks, find our Skinwalker Ranch series, one of our earliest ones, or just read George Knapp and Colin Kelleher's book on it, Hunt mm-hmm. for the Skinwalker. They're both former guests of the show as well. Mm-hmm. So here's another thing. Godfrey's left boot yeah. had a deep cut all the way through the sole, and his foot was itching mm. near the area where the cut was. And, and for him, that was never explained. Mm-hmm. He did have it looked at by a medical professional who said, well... I can't tell you what's going on here or why it's itching. It is consistent with some kind of trauma, but we don't have any evidence of that. Philip would probably say, although I don't know for sure, the cut was already there. Or I I might say, maybe he got it jumping over the wall or a Mm -hmm. gate in Centerville Park. I I don't know. But it's a serious cut. There's a picture of it in the book. uh, And we have a picture on on the website because uh, Philip shared it with us. But Godfrey might have been treated pretty poorly after all this, except that three officers in Halifax, about 13 yes. miles to the east, were looking for some motorcycle thieves that night, and they encountered a blue pulsing light that followed their car, and they did not feel that it was an airplane. little side here. In yeah. my description paragraph, I put that Godfrey was looking for motorbike thieves. I conflated the two. Oh, interesting. Right, right, right. And that's not. He was looking for... He, he was out on the road for a cow report, or I he, thought yeah, he was he also... Was for the cows, Yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't catch that in your description of part one. Yes. I didn't catch that because there were constables looking for motorcycle thieves. But no, what led him out that night was the teleporting cows. Right. How long after his uh, Godfrey's thing was the motorcycle, the three officers here? Um, In the book, it indicates that it was the same evening, but I feel like later in the book, it says it was a different night. Okay. A couple of, but not a long way off. Um, I feel like later it says that, which I looked for today and couldn't find in the, Okay. this is not a digital copy, so it was hard to search. The next day. It was close to around the same time, uh, you know, within a few days. All right. Well, remind me that we'll change it or you can. Yes. Okay. Okay. So Godfrey decides to retrace his steps and there was no evidence left in the road there. He drove up to the council houses and tried to figure out how, if cows had been up there, how they could have gotten down the hill into the park. He couldn't see any foreseeable path that they could have used. There was no way that he could figure that out. So let's talk about these witnesses that can corroborate to what... Godfrey experienced. Um, he found out that the caretaker of Fernie yes. Lee Junior School, now called Fernie Lee Primary, Leonard Smith had seen uh-huh. something at 5.15 in the morning, almost exactly the same time as Godfrey's encounter, if not the same time, when he was firing up the boilers to heat yeah. the school. 
Yes, you know, you can see him in the documentary clip, Strange But True. A lot of yes. people are on camera talking about their experiences. Yes. Yes, and we have links to those YouTube videos. You got to check that out. I, also, we're going to have a link to Kung Fu Capers, and you can see if you're going to die <laughs> laughing. Um, but Oh, uh, don't do that to people. No, no, I know nobody's going to. But I, I kind of want to watch it now. I'm, I, now yeah. I really want to see that sketch. I know. Um, so uh, anyway, what Lee had said about firing up the uh, boilers at the school, you know, he was up there that morning and he saw something. He said, quote, I could not believe my eyes because rising slowly up from the valley below was a large sphere-like object, end quote. He told Godfrey it went higher and then it zigzagged before shooting off like a bullet towards Burnley, which mm-hmm. is obviously where Burnley Road goes. Yeah, and zigzagging again, another common pattern. Another, another uh, common pattern, right. And to this day, that's happening. So to get an understanding of this, Godfrey was down in the valley on Burnley Road, about 800 to maybe 1,000 feet from where Smith would have been. The school is up on a hill. It's still there. It's not far from the council houses where the cows had also been reported. So Smith is up there. He sees this fear rising up from pretty much exactly where Godfrey would have been when he said he encountered it and pretty much at the same time. Again, this rules out it being a bus or a Futuro house because neither Mm -hmm. one of those can fly. Now, Godfrey and his friend Constable Agley were supposed to be signing out around 6 a.m. that morning, but by the time they finished poking around, they signed out at 6.30. Smith mm-hmm. had seen what he saw at 5.15 a.m. Right. Godfrey also described a vague feeling, which I liken to Richard Dreyfuss' obsession with Devil's Tower and yes. Close Encounters. And, and that feeling was, quote, this was not for your eyes, Godfrey. You should not be seeing this, end mm-hmm. quote. That's a mm-hmm. feeling, just a feeling he had, like a yeah. voice in his head. Now, his book mentions another encounter in the book, which came to him through prominent UFO UAP researcher Jenny Randalls, yes. whom we mentioned earlier that we had talked to in an attempt to get in touch with Godfrey. Yeah. Also appearing and interviewed in that uh, Strange But True. That's book. right. That's yeah. right. And in this particular story from page uh, 123, Jenny relays that this experience said from her encounter, I'm not going to go into that whole encounter, yeah. but she said this, quote, it was less a voice and more a knowing. I kept seeing or hearing the words, do not be afraid. And I did not feel afraid, end quote. Where have we heard that before? Mr. Cold. That's right. Or as Rich likes to joke, how can we get you to stop screaming? Yes. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's like, please don't be afraid. It's like, well, if you knew humans a little better and you had a little bit better bedside manner, maybe you would know. But I think they just don't care. They yeah. just don't like the sound. Like, oh, man, that's shrill. That's annoying. Stop doing that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we heard that... Uh, well, the uh, the angels that appeared to the shepherds in the field on yeah. the, uh, the star. Be not That's afraid. Right. Be not afraid. But it's something pretty out of this world, and so that's a pretty expected uh, and likely reaction, I would say. Well, that particular encounter, that one that we just referenced, that was only a few years prior and about three miles from where Godfrey was when he saw what he saw. And he said he had the same kind of feeling. Yeah. So here's the thing. After right. all this, Godfrey's career begins to unravel. It took yeah. years. Uh, he was taken seriously at first and treated okay, but that changed. He was assigned a new superior officer who started out demanding that he ride a bicycle on <laughs> patrol and yeah. presented him with this bike. And given his aforementioned injury to his groin, that was not yeah. something he wanted to or could do. Uh. And being one to speak his mind, he was pretty blunt about that. But he took the bike and then wound up just leaving it around town, and local kids were seen riding it everywhere. He didn't care. Yes. Yeah. No, that part's hilarious. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. I like this dude. I like right, his style. Right. Uh, the department knew he couldn't ride a bike, and they tried to get him to do it anyway. So 
eventually, and this is an overview here, you'd need to read his book, which, as I said, mm. at this point, it's, it's very hard to get for the more in-depth details. But eventually, he was actually instructed to do an interview with the press about his encounter, and he did it. And, of course, the press took a lot of things out of context and threw one thing and another. Yeah. His encounter got intertwined with Adamski's death, even though they were five months apart. Right. Then he gets called into the police headquarters, and the big boss says to him, why the hell did you do that interview? And he says, because I was told to by the press office. And this kind of thing just goes on and on. Yeah. They try to transfer him randomly to another town on short notice, but he outwitted them in that situation. He mm -hmm. was always ready for them. Now, this is where we get to the point where he does hypnotic regression. Yes. And he sat for two sessions with two different doctors. Neither one was told what they were trying to gather from him. And he told them both the same story. So the point being that, as we would say in remote viewing, they were not front-loaded. They went in blind. Right. The only assumptions yeah. they had made, or at least one of them had made, was just assuming that it was probably about a crime. Right. And they both got the same information from him. There's excerpts from this on YouTube from a show called Granada Upfront. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's scary to watch, frankly, when he gets yeah. upset. The link is in our show notes. I was actually going to put the audio in the show, but it's the recording quality is so poor, you have to kind of see him because he leans back and he's like, there's a light. And he puts his arms up in front of his face and you feel so bad for him in that moment when you're watching this. This is while he's under hypnosis. It's hard to watch somebody just going through that and yeah. you know they're not acting. People will still say they're acting, but uh, you've, you've seen actors, <laughs> you and I haven't yeah. worked with them. Yeah. That's not acting. And it's traumatic. Same thing with uh, Barney Hill in his right. session. Just the sheer terror. Talk about dying of terror. Like, you feel it. The other one I was going to say that we covered, Rob Christofferson gave us a clip on this when we talked about UFOs and the occult, is the abduction case of Jesse Long Jr. in 1957. And I believe there is footage of him undergoing regression. And it's pretty scary. It's pretty messy. Like, he's... Yeah. He's obviously terrified of something yeah. that's right there. And you, you know, you would hear the therapist say like, okay, you're not in any danger right now. You're just seeing images. Right. But even that is not terrifying. Hey everyone, Giovanni from Connecticut here. And when I'm weighing out soil samples, you better believe I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, in both of these cases, with the two different doctors that he saw at two different times, he talks about the white light. He puts his arms up over his eyes. He describes a tall being named Yosef. First, he says Joseph, and he's like, mm -hmm. no, it's Yosef with a Y. Yeah. Then he says there's eight grays, but they are like robots, and he describes them as horrible and says mm -hmm. they're touching him. Dude. Um, and his description of them is, it's almost like they're this soulless, like, I guess he doesn't say these, yeah. these are my words, but he seems right. to be describing them sort of as these uh, minions of Yosef or just, yeah. they're just there to help get things done. Yeah, again, very common, very yes, common. Yes, exactly. Uh, or uh, not automatons, but androids. Yeah. Of sorts. Bio-organisms of some kind. So right. he's then, here's this voice that's telling him to get on this table and he's like, I'm not getting on the table. And then mm. he's suddenly getting on the table. <laughs> 
Correct. And all of this is supposedly occurring between the time that the light flashed when he was sitting in the car, and then he found himself driving on the other side of the craft. Mm-hmm. He himself, and this is credit to Godfrey, and yeah. this is why I believe him so much. He's like, he's not sure what to think about it. He says outright, he exposed himself to other abduction stories in the preceding months right. before the hypnosis, and after what he had seen, he started looking into it. He read about Betty and Barney Hill. He, yeah. So he's like, that stuff could have been in my mind. It could have created those ideas. I don't know. But he always is adamant. Then he'll say, however, what the craft I saw, that was real. I was wide awake. That's not regression. It was real. It was as real as the car he was sitting in. And he has two witnesses to back that up. So over time, the cops keep trying to drum him out, but he was always one step ahead. He's probably pretty good at chess, frankly. Mm -hmm. Every time they'd try and set him up, he would tape conversations. He wore his own secret wire, or he'd bring his buddy with him to witness what he was being Mm -hmm. put through. Like when he'd been set up to be kicked out for medical reasons, they were nervous to railroad him in front of his friends, so it didn't happen. But this just kept making some mysterious superiors that he never found out who they were matter and matter, and they kept trying. Eventually, this culminated in him being ordered on short notice to meet for a psychological evaluation. But the doctor he met with was a man of integrity, and uh, that's what our opening quote was from. He did not take kindly to being told to push someone out who was clearly fine, especially someone like Godfrey, who was respected. And he basically said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And Godfrey got to stay in the force. And that doctor probably got in trouble. Yeah, well... During these years, he was followed by an unmarked van. His phone was bugged. He repeatedly saw an unknown man around his local police station and headquarters who was simply described to him as a man from ministry, which he doesn't think it was. Right, but do you think... I'm not leaning one way or the other or trying to uh, put this out there, but real spook agent or MIB, men in black? Man in black. I don't know with this situation because I think there's a couple of possibilities. Ask me that again after we uh, do our last section with Philip. Sounds good. Well, at one point, he was even getting letters from a scientist in Russia, or at least that's who this guy said he was, who feigned interest in his own close encounter, but he really wanted to know more about the infamous incident at Rendlesham because the UK was no doubt not really filling (laughs) Russia in on what happened on the military base. Right. So he wrote the guy back like once, but then after that, he did not write back the second time. So now he's he's getting letters from Russia about UFOs. Right. Well, what we do know, Scott, is uh, Rendlesham, I believe, and I don't think this is a secret. Oops, if it is. There were nuclear weapons involved with the base, which was not supposed to happen, but they were there. And I'm sure the Russians knew that. Yeah, exactly. So Godfrey never found out who had it in for him or why. And eventually, sadly, he was re-injured in the groin Mm, on the job during another arrest, which is also a metaphor for everything that happened to him since he reported (laughs) what he saw that night in Todmorden. And he did have to retire from the force. So where does Constable Godfrey come down on all this? Well, his jury is out on his own hypnotic regression stuff, but he is absolutely certain he saw a nuts and bolts craft on that night, and his account is backed up by Constable Agley, who saw the aftermath and the strange correlation of the cows on the rugby pitch mm-hmm. in the closed park. He's got the eyewitness account from Leonard Smith at the same time who was at the primary school up on the hill and saw that sphere come up from exactly where right. Godfrey was that morning. Well, this is an amazing story. We managed to talk to Philip Mantle a little bit more about some of these details as well as his personal experiences, and it was so intriguing that we're just going to roll the last bit of our conversation with him here now and then wrap up tonight's episode. So, Scott, you want to set this up for us? Uh, Yes. In this uh, very next bit, he's responding to me asking him who he thought was out to get Godfrey uh, kicked off the police force. 
there may be somebody in the mix within the higher echelons of the police force who perhaps Alan had robbed up the wrong way, you know, because he was abrasive. But I don't call it abrasive. I call it no nonsense. Yeah. You know, I would much rather have met a policeman like Alan, who if I was in real dire needs, I know I could count on him. But yeah. on the other hand, if I'd made a small mistake, it'd give me a telling off and say, if I catch you doing this again, you're going to get it. So maybe, I'm only guessing, I don't know. Maybe he, he rubbed somebody up the wrong way. And when the higher echelons gave him permission to go public, they then used that as an excuse to lever him out of the way. You know, and maybe got a few others on board to say, look, I told you this guy was a fruitcake. Now look what he's saying. You know, now you believe me. So it may have been a, a personality clash somewhere along the line. And you may not even know who that person was. It may have been something you just happened to say one day and they, they took offense at it and that was it. But it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't something like that. But they certainly, even though they gave him permission, they certainly did have it in for him. And I think it's, you know, personally speaking, I think it was disgraceful the way they treated him. I really do. Coming around to uh, Russia and Godfrey, what do you think about the letters that he was getting from Moscow? It doesn't surprise me. And I, I can give you an, a, a, my own example of this. In 1987, there was a big case hit the headlines in Russia in a place called Voronezh. And there was a UFO landing there. These tall beings were seen. It's supposed to have been left, you know, some evidence of it being there. And it was actually released by the official Soviet news agency, TASS. And Western media got hold of TASS and said, is this a joke? And they said, we don't joke. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. I was actually telephoned by a Russian national newspaper called Izvestia. I think I pronounced that correct, but it was a national newspaper in, in Russia, state controlled, of course, at that time. They asked me what I thought about this thing in Voronezh. I only knew what I'd read in the media here. So I, you know, explained this. I gave them a few quotes. They actually sent me a copy of the paper. I can't read a sodding word of it. It's all in Russian. But what happened thereafter, yeah, I started getting letters from Russia, some from a couple of UFO researchers, others from just members of the public. It just said, Philip Mantle, Batley, because that's the town I used to live in, UFOs battling England. And somehow they found me and lots of them. And 99% of this stuff was all in Russian. Now, at the time, I knew my colleague, Paul Stonehill in the USA. Paul was originally from the Ukraine, but had sneaked out and uh, was now living in the States. So eventually, I got hold of Paul on the phone and I said, you know, I'm going to send you this stuff because he could read and write the language. And, and off we went. And I sent it all to him. And we've written two books together about things in, in Russia since then. So I know, I know exactly how Alan feels, you know, and most of these things that I got didn't, because there was no address in the newspaper article I did, just my name and the town where I lived and the country. So I got, sure, Philip Mantle, UFOs, Batley, England, and that was it. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, so I didn't think anything nefarious was going on there either, but it, it was interesting. And he didn't even respond to the second letter. I think it was the second one. The first one he interacted, the second one he didn't. But it did make me wonder if it was somehow connected to them trying to drum him out. Because the other thing he talks about in the book is the guy he calls in, you know, in quotes, a uh, man from ministry, which he didn't really think he was from ministry and never really figured out who that guy was. 
Yeah, absolutely. It was a, that was a strange part of it all. I mean, it's strange enough as it is without without things like that. But, yeah. uh, you know, Alan was very wary. And, 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 and as we've seen, he had every right to be, because look what happened to him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you, with your broad research, all the cases you've come across over the years, is there one that is just really stands out for you that's like, you're, if I don't figure this out, it's going to drive me crazy before I leave this earth? Uh, any yeah. particular ones that really stand out for you there? Yeah, well, I briefly mentioned Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker. Yeah. At Pascagoula in 1973. Myself and my colleague, Dr. Irina Scott in Ohio, have been working on this case for the last five years. And we've just published our new book on it, and it's called Beyond Reasonable Doubt, The Pascagoula Regalian Abduction. And there is nothing like it. Where can people find this book? That's on Amazon. Okay. You know, it's, and it's published in three languages. It's English, Spanish, and French. You know, I started working with Calvin Parker in 2018 to publish his book. Uh-huh. And then well, once his book was released, then all kinds of other material we located, other witnesses. We even have a lady witness who was on the other side of the river that night and had her own encounter along with her husband. She also could see what had happened to Charlie and Calvin. Right. She was that close. Right. So with lots more witnesses, lots of documentation, and it is almost the perfect case. I don't think there is any such thing as a perfect case because, you know, we haven't got any physical evidence of what transpired that night, apart from some photographs of some minor injuries both men had. We haven't got, you know, a picture of a landing site or anything like that, you know, or a piece of film of it flying across the Pascagoula River. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just that we haven't got it. So it's almost the perfect case. When I first started speaking to Calvin, the case was dead and you know, nobody was interested. But because of all the information we've found since, that's why we call it beyond reasonable doubt. You know, you have to prove we are of the opinion that if we could take all that evidence into a courtroom, we could prove beyond reasonable doubt that something really bizarre took place that night. I'm not saying they were abducted by aliens, but there is no conventional explanation that I can, that I can think of. Uh, there really isn't. And I, I would I would happily give you one, but I don't have one. And you said earlier, I think you indicated, because I wasn't aware of this, Calvin has, has passed? Calvin passed away on August the 24th, yeah. Okay. He'd been fighting kidney cancer, which we knew was terminal. And it was just a question of, of when, you know. We were hoping he'd make it to the 50th anniversary in October, but he didn't. And I managed to speak to him a few days before he passed away. We spoke regularly all the time. We became good friends, even though we never actually met in person. And um, I bid him farewell. Yeah, a lovely guy, a lovely guy. But we found all kinds of information. You you know, you you just, I can't describe it all in just a few minutes. It's impossible. Well, um, you said Dr. Scott, right, in Ohio? Is that her name? Yes. Would you and yeah. Dr. Scott be interested in coming on maybe in March of uh, 2024 and uh, talking about this case with us? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, I, and I'll give you an example of how things happen. We just finished writing the book and said, we drew a line in the sand. We're not going to change any more of it. When a young lady, one of them of Chelsea Norton Prince, who runs the Ocean Springs Historical Society in Mississippi, contacted us. And she had an interest in the case, and, and she posted a couple of things on Facebook about it. One of the members had said, I've got two boxes of letters that used to belong to Charles Hickson. Would you like them? Oh, my God. 
And hey, presto, she scanned them all for me. I've got them all digitized. The lady who donated them said I used to have more of them, but I gave some others away. And whilst there's no smoking guns in these letters, there is, for example, an unpublished drawing of the UFO by Charles Hickson. Oh, wow. You know, there's also a one page and it's listed one to 20. And, it, and Charlie, hand, handwritten, describes every aspect of the encounter. Oh, my God. So the creatures look like this. Their, their head was so big. Their chest was so many inches across. We do it in bullet points now on the computer, but he did it one to 20 handwritten. There is letters to him from Betty Hill, Bud Hopkins. What is really interesting, there is a gentleman who was a NASA physicist, wrote to Charlie, Charlie Hickson, said, Mixer Hickson, when your encounter took place, I asked NASA to investigate, and they declined. They were not interested. So what a chance missed. You know, and this I've checked this guy out. He, he is a NASA physicist. You know, he's not just saying he was. I, f I found all his details. I don't know whether he's still alive or not. And there's little, there's other little nuggets in there, you know. Uh, but it just shows you what is lying around out there that we're not aware of. Hence, again, which comes first, the UFOs or the investigator? Had Irina and I not been involved in this, this box of, of letters would probably have been left gathered in dust and nobody will see it. But what it does, it spurs you on. Because this came out of the blue. What, what other stuff? Where, where did these other letters she gave away? The lady can't remember who she gave them to, you know? Right. Um, Charlie Hickson is, is deceased. He passed away in 2011. But we, we interviewed his, his son, Eddie. And Eddie said to me, I've got a box of photographs of my father. And I've got boxes of VHS videotapes. I have no idea what's on them. Because who the hell has a video player nowadays? You know, so we're trying to get access I to do. these things. To see. Yeah, but not many. You no, know? but I'm saying send them to me. I'll digitize all of them for you. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so Eddie can't go and stick them on the yeah. on the VHS and have a look because we know Charlie went on the uh, the Mike Douglas show. We went on other TV shows, and we don't have any record of them. We got a couple of stills, um, you know, but not the. So it might be them. You know, sure. Who knows? Sure. But uh, it shows you what information is lying out, around out there that we're not aware of. Well, speaking of the investigator in the mix, this is a question we asked most of our guests. Have you had a personal experience that's outstanding in all your years or, or any experience? No, I've had a couple of distant mm. sightings, one of which I'm pretty sure there's an explanation for, but I just can't find it. On July the 23rd, 1984, I used to work in a factory and I finished work just before 10 o'clock in the evening. And I was living at Tingley, you know, with my parents. And I came out in the car and it's, a, it's one long, long road all the way home. It's about two and a half miles. And I see this light in the sky. It's a lovely summer's evening. And I thought, I know it shouldn't be there. You know, I know the night sky. I got about halfway home where well, there's a place where I could stop the car, and I looked at this thing, and it's still there. I got almost home, and there's another place I could stop, and we, Tingley's on a hill. It's a valley below. The city of Leeds is in the valley, and, and there's out on the other hill is the airport, and to your right is a, a suburb of, of Leeds called Middleton. These two lights were hung above Middleton. You didn't have to stretch your neck. They were right in your face. The left one was larger than the right one. They were like an off-white color, just hung there. And then they're just gone. 
I got home, I phoned my colleagues at the Yorkshire UFO Society, I grabbed my camera, I went back out there and didn't see anything else. Goes to work the next day, some of my colleagues who had taken the mickey out of me endlessly about my involvement in the subject <laughs> said, Philip, 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 did you see those lights last night? Because they drove home a similar route to me, you see, and they saw them. And we got lots and lots and lots of reports of that. And I tried my damnest to pin it down, and I couldn't find a, an explanation for it, but I'm pretty sure there's one there. But then before that, in I think it was 1981, myself and Graham Birdsell were out on the moors, as I explained to you, beyond Skipton, a place called Carlton Moor. We had a, a lay-by where we could park the car, and the moor just stretches out in front of you, and there is nothing on it. Not a building, nothing. It's just black. And we stood there, you know, Graham had rung up and said, do you want to go on the moors for an hour? Yeah, off we went. We're talking about the football and things like that. And in the distance, this little light appeared. And Graham looked at me and I looked at him and he's thinking, well, that shouldn't be there. There's nothing, there's no building there, you know? So we jumped in the car. Now, Graham, on the best of times, used to drive like a maniac. So we're driving across the moors and he's going hell for leather now the fields there all have what we call dry stone walls around them so you have stone walls but they've got no cement in them right and at one point the wall fell away i don't know if it was a gate or whatever and i just saw this big uh, catherine wheel of lights in the sky it's like if you got the london eye and stuck it in the sky with all the colored lights on it uh -huh. and i'm not talking a little thing in the distance i'm talking right in your face and I yelled at Graham, and he slammed the brakes on. And we stumbled out, and it's pitch black. We, we didn't have a, a flashlight or a torch or anything, but we managed to scale this wall, because the walls are not that high, but we, there was nothing else. We couldn't see anything else. Graham was as mad as hell, because he hadn't seen it, because he was concentrating, keeping us on the road, you know? And I have no idea what it was. There is nothing there that conventionally could account for it. And this was similar to some of the other reports that we had from the area. I don't often talk about it because Graham's deceased. So I don't, he, you know, he never talked about it. <laughs> yeah, right. He hadn't seen it, you know? So I, I've got nobody to confirm what we saw that night because Graham's passed away, but it, that's what it was. And make of it what you will, uh, but that's it. Now, you know, nothing, nothing else, I'm afraid. Well, that's plenty. That, that's those, a great that's story. Something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those yeah. two incidents or something. Philip, we want to thank you for your time, spending so much time with us. These stories are fascinating. Um, we're going to very much look forward to having you back uh, in the early part of next year to talk about Pascagoula, because believe it or not, we've covered it over the years. This is our 270-something episode. We've covered a lot of the big stuff, but we've never covered Pascagoula, and I consider that very fortuitous that we met you just now, and we will have a chance to do that. Yeah, well, just to give you an idea, when I, when I set off looking for Calvin Parker— uh -huh. I contacted some investigators in Mississippi. Thought an obvious place to start. They hadn't even heard of it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it was dormant. It was dead. Yeah. Dead as a doornail. Yeah. And, and it, I'm not just saying it because we've been involved. That's just the way things worked out, you know? Yeah. I, I said to one person, they said, if you set out to a, what you would consider the perfect case, you have your checklists and you tick them off. I've ticked them all off pretty much on this one. But none of us expected what, what we were about to find. I'll give you an example. Charles Hickson, you mentioned hypnosis earlier on. He was under regression twice with Bud Hopkins. And we have the tapes. We have them transcribed. Calvin Parker, 
he went under hypnosis once with Bud Hopkins. <laughs> you know, we have that tape transcribed. I have the audio of it. He went under with Kathleen Marden. So and all this kind of stuff, we, you know, we never even knew ever existed. When the incident happened, October the 11th, 1973, a couple of days later, Dr. James Harder and Dr. Heineck arrived. I think I have, Dr. Harder tried to put Calvin under hypnosis. Calvin was so traumatized, they just gave up. And I think I even have that audio. It's pretty poor quality. Yeah. But I think I have it. And another significant development, potential development, is that Dr. Harder was sent to Pascagoula by APRO, right. the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which he was a member of. So they flew him down there. They paid for it. And we knew where the, the APRO archive was and who kept it, but we'd never been able to access it. Just this month, the whole APRO archive has been donated free of charge to the National UFO Historical Records Center in Albuquerque, of which David Marler is the executive director. So hopefully, I think it contains something like 13 filing cabinets full of stuff. I think there's about 40 boxes full of stuff. Wow. And, you know, various miscellaneous items. Yeah. David estimates it might take him about a year to go through it. So I'm hoping... And he knows I'm waiting. He knows yeah. that while he's going through these files, that, hey, bingo, there might be a file there on the Pascagoula case by Dr. James Harder. Wow. Watch this space. There'll be gems of information in them no matter what from other instances. Well, thank you again for your time today. Where can our listeners access your books? Where can they find anything by you? I have a little blog. I, I don't write a blog. I just put the books on it and, you know, the latest... I'll put links to your interview tonight on there, for example. It's just called flyingdiscpress.com. Disc with a K. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I use it occasionally, you know. So I'm easily found. I mean, you know, I've been around a long time. This old face has, you know, been around. So I'm easy enough to find. I'm grateful for everyone's support. But we have tons of books, not just mine, by colleagues from different parts of the world. And uh, they're all available on Flying Dispress. And uh, I, I'm sure there's something there for, for everyone. Well, that's great. Thank you again for joining us. And uh, we'll obviously let you know when this is posted. And we look forward to talking to you again in a few months about Pascagoula. My pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, Scott, where does that leave us on conclusions? Well, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I've really enjoyed covering this. This is a very fascinating topic. I want to stay on top of it. I'm excited about having Philip back next year to yeah, talk about Pascagoula. I'm excited that we met him at a time when we haven't covered that because it's one of those big topics mm -hmm. that's kind of shocking we haven't done already in 10 years. So I think it'll be particularly good to get that story from him since he's personally connected to uh, Calvin Parker yeah. and uh, Charles right. Hickson. And um, now that they're neither one is it's with us anymore, he's got a lot of new evidence from that. So that's pretty exciting. But let's come around yeah. to Godfrey. Okay. We've already talked about where we're both at, I think, on Adamski. As much as we can figure mm -hmm. that out, it's speculative, it, it's unsolved, and it'll never be solved unless somehow people come forward from Poland and say well, that we're part of the family, we can tell you what happened, which is something, I don't know. Okay. Marie Mayhew, yeah. are you out there? <laughs> Find the Adamski family yeah. in Poland. She might. 
and let's get to the the root of this. Ugh. If you brought them forward, it could prove that that was the family. And like, maybe they even kept the shirt. Again, it's like, well, why would you hang on to the incriminating shirt? Well, they did a lot of other yeah. weird things with this, right, if that's right, the case. And right. I'm saying, I'm going along with this, or can, it's possible, I think, there are some threads, loose threads, that are on yeah. this cord, which I'm following the cord, but there are, yeah, there's some loose threads to this knot here that just makes me wonder about it again, but also keeps piquing the interest in that it's not totally yeah. open and shut or cold or dead or this and that or hot. It is what it is, and you may never get those answers. But as you say, sir, if you were able to get some evidence from some unknown place, and rarely does that happen, but sometimes it does, something pops up and you get an answer. And there needs to be more to this. But for what we found, I think Philip has laid out a pretty good case. It's a good thread to keep investigating on if you were able to do that. Yeah. I want to go over there, yeah. honestly. It's like when I'm putting the pins in the mm -hmm. places that we'll go when we take our grand tour of Europe, we've got to get to, I know I said I would never go, but we've got to get to <laughs> Greyfriars. We've got to oh, get sure. to- Oh, sure. You'll go there. Uh, all over England, we just, we got to get over there. So, uh, and I really would love to go check this out and ha have a pint with uh, Mr. Mantle. Oh, of course. Even Mr. Godfrey, if he would have us. We'll throw Glenn in there as well. Yeah, of course. Well, of course. I, and I would all of our UK friends, our entire uncanny community, all the, the lovely listeners. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, we look at this situation. So we've got Godfrey who saw this bright light. He had missing time and then he was suddenly driving. Right. So did the older lady when she saw the cows in her yard, there was yeah. a bright light and there was missing time. She wasn't driving, right. thank God. That would have been quite something had she gone from her house to a car. This would make an absolutely amazing movie. We've heard a rumor that mm. that may be happening, but uh, those projects like that are hard to uh, bring to fruition. I, I know because my wife's in the business, but I could see this as a movie as we were researching it. Um, and I'm kind of surprised it hasn't been done yet. Jenny Randalls mentions another witness in the last chapter of Godfrey's book. It's a chapter that uh, she wrote herself. And this was a man named Bob Coates, uh -huh. and I thought this was pretty significant. He had been driving a Halifax bus that night and was on the road at 5 a.m. going north, the same direction that Godfrey would have been driving when he first encountered the craft, passing a building known as Mons Mill on the right. Now, this mill was a monster yeah. building, yeah. huge, probably easily the largest building in the area. And it would have been on the right, and he was going by where he said he'd seen a strange spot in the road. Mons Mill was a former cotton mill that was built in 1907, but was torn down in 2000. So it was there a pretty good while. Now there's homes up there where it used to stand, but this tells us exactly the spot where Alan saw what he saw. The coordinates of Mons Mill being for map nerds, 53 degrees, 43 minutes, 17.4 uh -huh. seconds north, and 2 degrees, 6 minutes, 24.1 seconds west. So if you want to type that in, yeah. you'll see where that was up on the hill. And then if you look down at Burnley Road just below there, that's where Godfrey would have had his encounter. So here's the thing. Coates drove up to the exact spot on that mm -hmm. night, and he describes the following. And so I'm going to read this from pages 294 and 295 of Godfrey's book. He says it was about uh, 4.55 a.m. All the litter and twigs on the road ahead of me were blowing like a whirlwind. The swirling was very unusual. Higher up the trees, nothing was moving. But lower down on trees and bushes and the road, all this stuff was. It was not the fact that the surface was a big dry patch that alerted me. Instead, it was all the twigs in a strange pattern that drew me to look. 
but closer up I saw the road was swirled dry. I stopped the bus right in the middle of it. The updraft was amazing. It was not a wind blowing at me like a stormy day. The draft was going upwards from off the road into the sky, but it only went up to about four feet. I moved my arm above shoulder height and there was nothing at all. The trees here were very still, so I moved my arm back down and the strong updraft was still there hitting me. So mm. that's a third witness now. Mm-hmm. Now here's the thing that's odd. I've been all over Todmerden on Google mm. Street View, as you know, because I'm big on that. And for some reason, I don't fully understand. The spot exactly where I think Alan saw this craft is unavailable to view on Street mm. View. There's literally mm. a little gap in the coverage that's only about 200 feet long. Add to that, there's a building there in Centervale Park that I'm pretty sure is the one he's standing yeah. in front of in a picture taken by Jenny Randalls that's in the book. And that spot's not only not possible to get to in Street View, but the gateway next to it is blurred out. And it's just a park or the lawn bowling club building right. or something. So that's a bit strange to yeah. me. I don't want to get like completely off the deep end. And, and Philip would be like, oh, come on, Scott, if, if he was here. But it makes me wonder if the Google Earth camera like went out in that little stretch of road I when it passed through there. Proposed that to you when you showed me, and it's like, okay, but that's a stretch. And then you would have to talk to some Google technicians, and they will tell you, like, right. well, that doesn't happen. Or yes, that can happen. Now, here's the thing about devices like that, electronics. There are ghosts in the machine, and right. uh, sometimes literally, a very good friend of ours who had let's just say some family members pass away. It was pretty traumatic, of course. But in the time after that, they had a strange case of the ring doorbell going off. Yes. As they approached the doorbell. And at first, it was around this time, actually. It was probably 4.30 in the morning, 4.20 in the morning. And our friend was like, well, who's at the door? Nobody should be at the door. And it's like, course no one's there and then they noticed sometimes the doorbell would ring when they were inside no one was there or as they approached the door coming home from some of it like the memorial so our friend very curious of course calls up ring and says like okay this sounds really weird but this is happening to me it's like oh yeah we call that the phantom ring he's like what it's like is right. that happening before like oh yeah, yeah it happens all the time now sometimes it is a glitch with the device of course they can fail and have weird things going off and and it might be a proximity thing maybe not but right the guy said apparently he's like yeah but you're gonna have to do this you know you got to take the camera apart i'm gonna need this serial number i'm gonna need the serial number off the camera lens or whatever the device the battery and it's like that's a lot of work for them to say like well we don't know and that also is an answer he says like yeah sometimes we don't know it's just like there's nothing wrong with this thing and Right. So I believe that unseen forces can affect electronic devices. Well, it's just, it's interesting to me that Street View, and when you zoom out and, you know, when you turn on Street View on Google Maps, just the browser-based one, you don't even have to be in Google Earth, it highlights all the roads in blue that have been covered by the camera. And every road around there is covered. And this little stretch where this encounter happened is blank. It's it's not there. Are you saying? It's it's just a couple hundred feet. So it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. weird. It's uh, Well, it looks like either the car turned around at that point and did so on the other side of the 200 feet span, or it just stopped there and came back on. Yeah, I just, it's weird. Uh, but I'll anyway, so now, so now we have three witnesses to various parts of what Alan Godfrey saw. PC Agley, Leonard Smith up at the school, 
And now, and when I when we say PC, that's police constable yeah. for folks. Um, Leonard Smith up at the school, and now Bob Coates, the bus driver. And for those of you who say, well, Godfrey just saw Bob's bus that night. That's absurd, mm. because Bob didn't see Alan Godfrey or the craft or Alan's panda police car. And add to that that Alan, among his many former jobs, used to drive right. a bus. He knows what a bus <laughs> looks like. Yeah. So yeah, going to go with no okay. on that. But notably, Bob didn't see right. Alan, and Alan didn't see Bob. So there were people coming and going that night, but oddly, many didn't see each other. And I can't help but wonder, when Bob the bus driver mm-hmm. was there and he felt activity, if at that time, Alan and his car were somehow in another reality. Mm. Like present, but invisible. And that's why Bob noticed that strange updraft, but couldn't see anything. That's a great so pondering. Huh? So interesting. Is yeah, that, that's, it's, that's based on our experience. Well, the effect that's of something thought. is there, but it's in another dimension. Oh, people hate that too. <laughs> Just whatever you say. I know they hate it. I know. People, they're going to not like certain segment of the- This is what we do. You know, the the audience and the population in general aren't going to like your idea, aren't going to like what you said. Yeah. So I think that's a great point that you are pointing out that something is there and causing an effect that we can't see. Well, that happens all the time. Electricity does that. The wind does that. Yeah. Uh, Temperature. A lot of times things cause an effect that we just can't see. doesn't mean they're not there. Maybe this is in that realm. And that's what's fascinating. What I also like, though, just for balance and a little bit of uh, agency on us poor groveling grubby humans, is that maybe they can't detect everything about us all the time. Maybe we're a mystery sometimes. Maybe we're inscrutable. We are ineffable. We are inimitable in our just we're, we're so ridiculous to them and such at a low level that we do dumb things it's like yeah now what if, what if they they bring us on the ship and we're the face hugger that disappeared under the, ex- under the piece exactly of or like where'd that thing oh go? my god that guy did that in the planter in the hallway get him out of here oh oh my god i'm not cleaning that up so th- that's yeah. the idea though is that we're so unpredictable and foul and uh but that we have some power and mystery of our own and that they are not perfect. I don't buy that is the argument that you hear for a lot these days. It's like, well, they wouldn't do that. Look how technologically advanced they are. Yeah, yeah. but they don't know how to put clothes back on. They yeah. wreck things. As Phillips says, like, they're not great at memory erasing. <laughs> Maybe they right. should rethink that. Right. Or as I think, they just don't care that much. Like, that's enough. Right. Uh, we're not going right. to refill your prescription on the memory loss and the screen memory. You get one shot. You were horrified. You're going to remember this later. We're gone. We got other stuff to do. See ya. Right. Good luck with all that. So anyway, that's kind of my thoughts there as far as wrapping this up is that it's still a mystery. But what do you think here? Where do you stand for your money? Well, I guess for my money, I don't personally think Adamski was part of all of it. Although he may have been. But for me, they're two separate instances, regardless of their origin. And again, for me, the most intriguing part of the story is Alan's physical encounter. Yeah, that's a lot more... Well, that's present. He's alive. He can tell us about this. Yeah, that's not hypnosis. That's not Adamski speculation. That's like he stopped the car and saw a thing. So, And I believe him. And Philip believes him. And I think a lot of people believe him. So I also wondered, you know come back to the little interdimensionality mm-hmm. thing, which I know makes some people upset, but I wondered if when the three officers in Halifax saw a flashing blue light, 
if they're seeing some kind of a rip mm. in the mm -hmm. time-space continuum. Seeing an interdimensional reflection of Alan's panda and the blue lights flashing on it while he was sitting in front of it, somehow warping in front of them in the sky. Yeah. Like being in a few places at once. Like, because all these thoughts are coming to me based on, you know, Grush's testimony and all this disclosure stuff that's trickling out and the idea and the nature of these craft that may be visiting us I'm trying to think less nuts and boltsy and more like, because that was interesting yeah. to me that the three officers saw a flashing blue light and he turned the flashing blue lights on on top of his car, whether it was the same time or not. Time doesn't seem to be an issue for these things yeah. and neither is geography. So to me, I kind of wonder if multiple witnesses can be experiencing the same thing, even though it's at different times yeah. and in different places, although they are in close proximity. So just a thought, if you're thinking outside the box. Mm. You know, I wondered this before when I first heard stories of abductions and people claiming missing time, and you hear some efforts of alien big brothers and sisters coming down here and doing these things and trying to cover it up or it's like or at least bothering to put in a screen memory bothering to it seems at least give it a, a half hour <laughs> attempt to make some people forget or be invisible or this and that and then you wonder it's like well then you still have missing time it's not like who knows again if they have mastered time travel and some believe that they do or that there is even a device like i mentioned in our oh uh, you're gonna hear this uh, around christmas more towards Christmas, the yellow box theory that there is a device like the chronovisor that can allow you to manipulate time and space. And somehow we've, uh, like the TVA, we've screwed up the timeline and it had to right. be stitched and repaired by some <laughs> higher authority. Something happened, but uh, we're living in a different timeline that uh, where things aren't nearly as bad. Think about that, folks, when you think things are terrible. They could be worse or better. But the idea here is that there is some ability to manipulate time. However, in these cases, they don't bother to do it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we abducted this guy. We could have gone back to that minute, that exact second where we did it, but we didn't. It took 30 minutes. He's going to miss 30 minutes. He just won't remember him, but we didn't go back in time to do that. Maybe it's not worth it. Maybe right. you're, you are messing with a timeline that will screw you up too if you dabble with it too right. much. You know, press the rewind button on that the redo button. Maybe that's not possible. We don't know. Like I said, there's a lot of indicators here that as clever as they are, what they want is some kind of apotheosis, some kind of divine uh, state of being throughout the universe. And they're, right. they have not yet found it, even if they're a million years ahead of us in technology. So the idea though, is that they have all these abilities, but they're lacking in some way. And then sometimes there are effects that happen that they don't care about or are about or are beyond their control. And maybe that's what we're seeing. And to them, it's as simple as you biting a wintergreen lifesaver in the dark, looking in the mirror and it makes a spark. You know, maybe it's totally dark. You didn't see you. It's just a magic spark. But no, really the truth is you bit into a lifesaver that happens to be winto green. Do you know what right. I'm saying? That's a prosaic yeah. pedestrian cause. But if you just saw the spark, like, oh my gosh, a spark out of nothingness. Yeah, right. And so it's how you take it. It's your experience. And you're not there to smell the the, the wintry, delightful, fresh breath <laughs> that it produces. <laughs> you're just there to see the aftermath. And it's scary. So in this case, though, yes, I'm on board, let's say. I'm going down the bus lane here with the pedestrian 
cause of Adamski's death. I don't know. And also may or may not be connected to Alan Godfrey, but that is more otherworldly because of his testimony and what we can glean from, uh, you know, a guy who's still alive, who I'm pretty sure saw what he saw and knows what he saw. Yeah. Connection just makes it more fun. It makes it a more interesting story. It may not be real. We don't know yet, but it's, it is still weird. It doesn't make Adamski's death any less weird or mysterious. I, I think on that front, maybe for his, uh, I don't know if the in-laws know and they're like, well, we've more in the passing, but we know what happened. If not, I hope they get some peace someday, knowing the truth, but that often never comes. Well, no matter how you look at it, this is one of the most intriguing cases out there. A combination of true crime, cold case, unsolved homicide, UFOs, abduction, and high strangeness. We can always parse out the separate threads of this story into their respective origins, or try to, but on the other hand, as we've been saying for over nine years now, even when you do that, everything is connected. That's going to wrap up part two of our series on the paranormal cold case of Zygmunt Adamski. A very special thanks to Philip Mantle. Find his work and that of many others at flyingdiscpress.com. Thank you to Paul Gledhill as well for connecting us. We'll be back next week with the Astonishing Legends All-Star Holiday Special 4, as in the number 4, our last new show of the year, with Jim Harold, Micah Hanks, Richard Haddam, Paul Gledhill, Allison Jornland, and the hosts of Scared All the Time, Ed Vicola and Chris Kulari, along with a surprise appearance from Miranda Merrick of the Midnight Library, as well as the woman at the top of our organization, Tess Feifel. Don't forget to find and subscribe to both Scared All the Time and the wonderful Midnight Library wherever you get your podcasts. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Giovanni Esposito. My name is Phil. I'm Tiffany Weisman. V-A-I. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. M-I-G-H. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.